welcome to another episode of Morelia Python Radio. Oh, and we are at episode 250 yeah. tonight. 250. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of episodes. We, uh, we've been doing this quite a while. Um, and, we need hobbies, uh, <laughs> we need hobbies is what we need. <laughs> uh, this, you can't say that when we do it, man, we go all in, man. It's, it's all or nothing. There's no, there's no half-assing it with us. Um, tonight we're going to be talking about locality chondros amongst other things. Um, this is a show that, uh, I've been wanting to do for a long time. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, mainly because I'm a fan of locality chondros. <clears throat> I know a lot of people are into the designer stuff and the high blue and high yellow and, and, and all that kind of stuff, which is all awesome. You know, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. I love all that. But, uh, to me, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like geeked out about locality stuff. Um, I don't think there's enough of it in the hobby. I don't think, uh, I think, uh, that, you know, one of the things that we'll talk about tonight, I'm sure is, uh, you know, entry-level Contro stuff. Um, I don't see a lot of it out there. I mean, if I'm out there shopping for locality stuff, it's hard to find, man. I, I don't know. I, it is. I, yeah, it's not something you see all the time. So there's a lot of current controversial subjects that are entwined in the locality Contro um, talk, for sure. But uh, right. no worries. Um Harlan uh, Wall will be joining us, and he is probably one of the uh, the guests that the listeners have been wanting us to get on for a long time. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, his name kept popping up every time I would post up. Um, you know, who should we have on? Who should we have on? Um, so I think uh, it, this will be a good episode for sure. I, I talked to him last week. We did sort of like a, a pre-show. Uh, we probably should have made that the show and had you call us and did it. <laughs> just, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just did it there. Yeah. But, uh, you know, in that conversation, we, we, we talked about a lot of stuff. And uh, he has a um, very interesting viewpoint on a lot of things. Um, and uh, I think it will make for a good conversation and um, uh, get people thinking, which is kind of the idea. But uh, But before we get going with that, what's going on with you, man? Uh, still going on with the whole trying to get the babies fed and for, I got a show this weekend and it's, um, I didn't realize it's been a while since I did a show because, uh, we missed the last Hamburg because I went with you to Texas. So, um, I have to like re-gear up and figure out how I'm going to do this and how many babies I got, are my displays clean and all that fun stuff. So I'm starting to do that bit by the bit this week so yeah other than that same as always just kind of doing all this i've uh, rediscovered why i hate aquatic turtles so um (laughs) okay (laughs) there there are two aquatic turtles now in my bar area of my basement right and you don't know that there's a room full of snakes nearby because all you smell downstairs is turtle and it's just driving me slowly insane. So, what does turtle smell like? I didn't know turtle had a smell. Like turtle. It smells like turtle. It smells like turtle. <laughs> turtle smells like turtle. Uh, right? I, I, I didn't and know I that. Sound crazy right now. Stop it. <laughs> 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 okay. <laughs> um, 
but it's one of those like you're trying to balance it out. You know, you spend a couple hundred bucks on a big ass filter, and now you're gonna to try to figure out a way to. Now I'm gonna. Try, I'm trying now to figure out a bio way to keep the water as clean as possible, with possibly like what fish species could I put in there that, you know, the turtles will leave alone, but it'll help clean the tank a little bit. And how many do I put in there before they're making more of a mess than they're cleaning up, and all that stuff. It's bioactive kind of stuff that I'm trying to deal with. And again, it's just one of those. I redid my whole hatred for aquatic turtles. Um, <laughs> I'm a python guy, and that's yes. where I want to be. <laughs> so, uh-huh. Yeah, that's our that's our comfort zone, man. <laughs> it's the sure. comfort there. It's all everything's safe there. Yeah. So um, yeah, we're working on that. Other than that, doing nothing, trying to get uh, everything ready to go for Hamburg and all that fun stuff. Cool. What's going with you? Uh, I just uh, started uh, feeding the babies today. Um, all mostly all of them went, uh, which is good. But I start everything on live hoppers. Uh, I don't even mess around with right. frozen salt until they've taken uh, at least three meals, and then and then I switch over. By that point, it's 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 right. super easy. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um. Other than that, uh, you know, I did a lot of work on my website. It's this is where having the uh, the book comes in handy. The big uh, what do you call it? The big uh, it's on like papyrus or something. What do you call it? The big oh, yeah, oh yeah, book your, your, your magic cone book. Yeah, yeah, your big yeah. cone book. Yeah, <laughs> I did notice you were like I made adjustments in 2017. I'm like what? So <laughs> we haven't even it is it is June. Sir, yeah. I'm not well, going to talk about 17 breeding till like August. Well, Even see, then it's going to be like, hey, we're going to be breeding stuff in 17. Uh, <laughs> <for what?" laughs> so, uh, one of the reasons I do that is because now, right now, is when I feed up my my females that uh, you know I want to go. You know, I like really push the food to them. Um, you know, the whole cycle feeding, which is another topic we'll get into tonight. Um, right. But I, I don't know. I, I just found that that works very well for me, um, particularly with uh, Erie and Jaius. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't have any. All mine are with Balin. So they'll breed um, because I'm not doing it, and I don't care. <laughs> so Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of Erie and Jaius, uh, yeah, we got, we got a couple more minutes. Um, so – I think I talked about this on the last show, but I put pictures up. So um, you want to talk about selective bred uh, perfection. Uh, you know, I have that poster right. child IJ, uh, which, which is uh-huh. re- literally orange and has no black at all. It's like zero black. Um, so Nick Mutton sent me his female that um, has virtually no black. She's not quite as orange, but she has no black. Well, He's entrusted me with his favorite IJ, which makes me nervous as shit. Oh God! <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, holy shit! That's like no one breathes on this thing. It's like you know, you it's know, like it's... yeah, it's like having Tony Soprano's. Uh, you know, like having uh, you got to take care of his car for the weekend or something. Then don't mess it up. Exactly. Yeah. Well, don't mess it up. It's gonna be one of those like you're gonna open the drawer and she's gonna be in the back corner where it's cold. 
and your poster child is going to be up in the warm spot, you're like, get off the heat. You're like, oh, <laughs> so yeah. that, like she has avail- like, even then, even though they were like perfectly fine. And for all, you know, she just spent the entire morning on the heat. So yeah, it's going to be one of those things. Yeah. But, um, if I'm successful with that, uh, which I think that I will be, I don't see why it wouldn't be. Um, I think that will make for some unbelievable uh, IJs, just like insane IJs, um, which you know is uh, is 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 a is something that's near and dear to my heart. I know nobody else gives two shits yep. about, but <laughs> I don't. Yeah, it's all right. I, yeah. I can't. It's, yeah, I know. It, they'll look neat, and I'll be like, "Yay!" And then I'll be like, "So, how are the M10 coastals doing?" So <laughs> it'll be kind of like one yeah. of those. Deals. I'll segue easy into it though. Yeah. The um the other thing um the other thing that I got going on is uh, I got to tell you man I I know I say this a lot but tonight I was uh, feeding and cleaning and my inlands mm. are getting just bigger and bigger and dude they are the coolest carpet python hands down hands down they're the coolest they are so <laughs> oh man I can't I can't describe to you how freaking cool these things are um i have a limited amount of cages and you can't start you can't keep doing this to me okay dude, you can't keep calling I, and being dude, like hey they're freaking awesome Owen. why don't my, you have like six of these because then i'm gonna make poor decisions <laughs> my one female um she's like so super light it's like she's like a a gray blue super like almost exanic but with this blue hue to her um then the male from that same line has like the red tail coming in oh dude i'm mm-hmm. telling you man, unbelievable another one that's killer hypo breadle yep oh my well, god I can live without the hypo breadle <laughs> I, I really can oh, I, can, my I can live god. without the hypo breadle because eventually i'll just make some of my own because mm-hmm. like you won't even you won't even know what happened. Like it'll be like you'll open the drawer that has your hypo brettle male, and one of my females will just be in there, and you're like, "How the hell did this happen?" <laughs> oh, Whatever. It's like breaking into my house and breeding animals. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know. So just like that. So yeah. I'll wait for the hypos. But but the inlands are something because, dude, I I totally dig exanic carpets. I should, you know, at this uh-huh. point I have like four, but it's like having an inland is like having a, an exanic carpet that's built like a bread lie where it's like, it cannot die. It's like, so that's what I've kind of been leading towards for one from inlands. And I do especially love their head patterns that a lot of them tend to have that like bluish gray kind of arrowhead on their um, head. is kind of, I, I absolutely love that. So freaking incredible. Everybody should have at least a pair. <laughs> but I'll get there. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't have anything else going on. I want to get this going because I know we got a lot of topics to hit on and tons to talk about. So let's Go get uh, Harlan on here. Hey, Harlan. Welcome to Morelli Python Radio. Excited to have you. Looking forward to uh, to chatting with you. How you doing? Doing good. How how how's, how are you guys doing? Awesome. Now we're surviving. <laughs> well, that's all you. That's all you can do. That's man. all you can. That's all you can. Yeah, exactly. You guys hearing me? Okay. Yes. Hearing you fine. Good. Perfect. Good deal. All right. 
Good. Yeah, so, man, 250 shows. Holy mackerel. You guys, i got to hand it to you. That's really impressive. You guys put a lot of effort into this, and, and I think it's uh, that's pretty incredible. That's a wow. pretty incredible feat. So. Thank you. Good, good work. Thank you very much. Yeah, we yeah. attempt. We show up on Tuesdays. So it's one of those <laughs> things. That's half the battle. So, um, For sure. But... Uh, but Harlan, why don't you go into uh, what got you kind of tied up in the whole uh, reptile bug? Oh man, you know, uh, I think like like many of us, uh, it started uh, as as a young uh, a young infection, and it just it just <laughs> overtook the system. I think when I was when I was really little, you know, my dad used to sit around the when we'd have dinner, he would always he was raised on a ranch in New Mexico, and uh, he would always tell stories about about catching a snake. He would tell all kinds of stories, but the stuck out for me were the were the snake catching stories, you know. And, and it got to this point where, you know, I, I think we exhausted all of his snake telling stories. And every time we'd be sit down at dinner, Dad, Dad, tell a snake story, you know, tell a story about a snake. <laughs> like, you know, I think I would tell the one about, and you know, he's like, I think I've, I've told you all of them. I said, I'll tell him the one, and he's like, Well, you know, you could probably tell that story better than me, you know, that kind of. And I was like, mm-hmm. Dad, you know, my mom would take us to the library and. uh you know, snakes are what taught me to read. You know, my my mother used to take us to the library, and we'd, we'd all. Uh, I was always getting reptile books, and specifically snakes were the thing that that intrigued me. And and uh, so, anyway, uh, I remember sometimes I would come up and say, "Oh, this is the book I want." And she, and I came up with one. It was it was let's just say it was a lot of meat and meat and potatoes. It was well of, of, mm-hmm. of my pay my pay grade, you know. And uh, she said, "Are you sure that's the one you want to check out?" And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, this is it." And I, I can't even remember the name of the book, but it was white and it had a cobra on the front, and uh, it was a pretty in depth, uh, pretty in depth book for for a kid. And you know, I would look at the pictures and I said, what, "What does this say?" And she's like, "I'm not going to tell you. You have to sound it out." You know, I was like, "Mom, but please, mm-hmm. I just want to know the, just the caption." And she'd say, "Well, you have to sound it out." And uh, you know, um, I think that really, when you, when you've got kids, I think in, instead of uh, um, dumbing things down for them, uh, throw the throw the big words at them. Like you know, Trump knows big words, right? But <laughs> mm-hmm. um, no, but you know, you throw big words at them because I think uh, at that age their brains are like a little sponge and they soak everything up. And uh, you know, it just took off from there. I, I brought a, I caught a skink. I lived on on the Front Range in Colorado, and uh, at the time, and I, I caught a skink and I brought it home. And I remember my mother distinctly saying, "You better never bring a snake home." About two weeks later, I brought my first snake home. It was a, a bull snake, and uh, um, I had no idea what kind it was. I just, I just grabbed the snake and like wrapped it up in a piece of plastic. It was there's a piece of plastic in the bottom of this ditch, and I didn't have anything else. I just grabbed it and kind of wrapped it up. It almost bit me. Kind of struck and just barely grazed my my hand. Got it home and and. Uh, we put it in a bucket. My dad said, do you know what kind of snake that is? And I said, I have no idea. Did it bite you? I said, well, it just barely grazed me right here. And he's like, you know, that's, that's dangerous. So we need to have you, you have to, before you can catch any more reptiles, you have to learn more. So then it was like, mom, take me to the library. And, uh, you know, it started out like that. We moved when I was about 11. Uh, we moved from uh, Denver to, to the, the Grand Junction area uh, in western Colorado. I'm like a stone's stone's throw from. If I throw a rock, I'll hit a Mormon in the head uh, in Utah. I mean, it's, we're really close, you know. And um, okay. so, so I'm right there on the border. And uh, anyway, um, 
And again, it, it continued this fascination with animals in general. I've always just been fascinated by them, but, but uh, reptiles really stuck out. And I, I got lucky and bumped into this, this guy. He's an old-time herper. Maybe somebody out there has heard of him. Uh, his name's Larry Valentine, and uh, he was he was a real uh, asset in my life and still is. Uh, I, I call him my, my adopted dad, and uh, he, he just mm-hmm. really uh, gave me a lot of pointers and uh, helped me out and you know, I, I, I just continued from there. You know, when other kids had a paper route or whatever, I was, I was keeping working with snakes. And, and, uh, and that continued all the way uh, through high school, you know, uh, when somebody was flipping burgers. I, then again, I was, here I was selling snakes and, and working with snakes and, and uh, all different types of animals, but mostly, again, reptiles. And, uh, you know, uh, the cool thing is uh, reptiles paid my way through college, and uh, you know, I I, uh, I studied herpetology under under Dr. Stephen Werman, a, a pretty prominent um, herpetologist at uh, Colorado uh, Mesa University, and and uh, so I got very lucky just to have an, you know a good professor near me, and uh, we became very good friends too. Um, I just talked with him the other night. He was he was like Harlan, I need I need con color. I got a friend coming into town. He needs some to photograph some con color. A uh, western midget faded rattlesnake, and he said, "Can you can you get some for me?" We went out snake hunting. We didn't actually find a con color that night, but but uh, you know it's nice. We my my addiction to reptiles um, fed my my for my college education. My college education uh, mm-hmm. feeds my my business, and so it's um, yeah, it it, it really uh, has, has fit together very nicely. And um, you, you know the best part about this is that. The connections that you make with people all over the world—that's mm-hmm. like the un- unseen, uh, the the jewel, uh, hidden jewel in this in all of this—is that we get, we get such a connection with so many people. I think that's pretty. Uh, that, that's a, a big payback in itself. Oh heck yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> I never thought and I it would. It didn't be- hurt to be near near uh, near the bushmaster. You know, uh, <laughs> that didn't hurt either. Uh, he, he really uh, helped me. In a lot of ways too. There's there's so many people that you know you, you could when you think of all the p- different people to to give thanks to, to to that have led you where you're at. Um, you know, there's just your show doesn't go that long. So um, anyway, <laughs> it, it, it's really fun. You know, it's really fun, and I think that's uh, yeah. Every, I like everybody. I got started out. I actually started breeding uh, the big stuff. I started with with Burmese pythons. Um, um, you know, I, I started c- collecting a lot of other uh, local snakes, but the first snakes that I actually purchased were, uh, you know, I, I'd hashed out other snakes and, and played with other snakes, but but the first snakes that I actually purchased were were Burmese pythons, and you know, uh, uh, another snake that is, has gotten a, a lot of bad press, but I, you know, I, I've got nothing negative to say about them. They they really kind of helped launch my career and did nothing but good for me, and I think they're they're amazing snakes in their own right, um, regardless of what some Florida politicians might think, but, but anyway, <laughs> yeah, forget those guys. Yeah. 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 But anyway, you know, it's, it just kind of blossomed from there. Um, like, like every herper, uh, when you earn a dime, uh, you, 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 the first thing you want to spend it on is more snakes. You know, that, mm-hmm. uh, that, that meme that you always see where the, the guys like destitute, you see poor on the side of the street and it says like herper on it, you know, um, <laughs> yeah, we, we're always every every dime we earn, we we're like, oh, you know, look, I sold these and I made this, and then we're like, ooh, but I could buy those, you know, that kind of thing, and and uh, you kind of leapfrog. I started out selling to a lot of pet stores, and 
and I realized pretty quickly uh, that 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 wasn't you know I mean I had a, a quite a few pet stores under my belt that I was um, I was you know jobbering to or wholesaling to, and I just realized very quickly that this is not um, when you're you're selling to um, an audience that you know um, eventually they're going to be caging those animals in a in a hole in their backyard that they dug with the spade um, because they just they kind of uh, it's a lot of impulse purchase. Uh, I say skirt skirt jerkers. Uh, the, the kids are mm-hmm. like, "Mommy, mommy, I want this," but the, the parents don't put the time into helping the the kid uh, really learn the meat and potatoes of it, and um, and it just doesn't do well for the animal. So I, I decided, you know, I needed to change gears, and it's been a learning a learning experience the whole way. This this business has changed multiple times kind of refocusing and every time you change gears you say well you know that's not the clientele that i, I don't want to um sell the cheapest thing to the person who's going to take the least care of it why don't we step it up a little bit and and i just hate the whole theory of disposable pets when i saw things like toke geckos finally get some recognition i was like yeah those, they deserve it you know and and uh anyway it's finally led me to the animals that I focus on now, and uh, green trees are are among that group of animals, and I, I love them. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Is that is that the main focus of what you work with? Is would you say green uh, trees main focus? No, I I work with uh, I work pretty heavily with with emerald tree boas, and and with Amazon tree boas, and I also do quite a bit with blood pythons, and I have that um, that same perversion that many of you have probably heard about ball pythons. <laughs> um, yeah, I like I like them too. Now, you know, it's funny, you know, the, the ball pythons. Um, you know, ball pythons. Uh, they get a bad rap. Again, I think it has a lot to do with um, it's it's the people, and it's it's also uh, you know, I, when I say it's the people, I, I think pop, probably those who get started in whatever the the, the kind of um, the people that are kind of breaking ground on the, on one thing. Maybe it's we're partly responsible. Um, for for the people that enter the hobby as well, because it's part of our, mm-hmm. our responsibility to culture those people up, and it shouldn't be um, this mad dash to make money. And I think that's the problem with ball pythons is that so many people saw it as a, a, an avenue for a quick buck, and and consequently also at the same time this phenomenon of, of phenomenon of uh, uh, oh I guess you would call it monoculture. Um, yeah. In America, mm-hmm. where, where you walk by and you see just table after table after table of of ball pythons, and and I'll tell you, it it could happen very easily with green tree pythons. In fact, their their sunset would come a lot quicker than it than it could for ball pythons, and um, than it than it has for ball pythons. I mean, ball pythons, there's still a lot of neat cutting edge stuff out there, and it's not like it's old hat or anything. There's fun things to be done, but when I say that, I was in a discussion once, and somebody said something about, oh well, Morelia, uh, they, you know, they'll they'll never. Uh, have the problem come to this uh, problem that, that ball pythons have, and I said, I said "Whoa, I wait disagree. a minute!" <laughs> I'm like, nah, yeah, I'm no, like no, they'll no, get there a lot not. quicker. You know, I'm like, it's "You're right," it's happened. because they won't last as long as ball pythons have lasted, and it's just because uh, those animals, the fecundity of those animals, their 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 ability to to reproduce in numbers, it, they're they're not such difficult animals. Whether it's green trees or or carpets, whatever, uh, to to reproduce in captivity. Um, and uh, um, take more cage space, and uh, and they take a little. They're not something that you can just um, shove in a rack and forget. Kind of 
like not like you do that with ball pythons, but you know they, they take a little more hands-on sure. um, interaction, and and just the size alone, uh, you just can't do you can't have um, a, a sizable collection, um, you know, under the nose of the RA while you're in college in your dorm room, uh, like you could possibly get away with with ball pythons not that you should but um you, you see where i'm going you can't have there's, there's not everybody has a, a 10 racks in their mother's basement um with green trees in it because it takes up too much space but you know that's uh ball pythons had that that scenario and i just think uh, morelia uh, it won't it couldn't uh withstand what ball pythons have been through um just because uh, it, they're they they produce more, and so the, the market will will uh, peter out, um, or not that it will peter out, but it you know it just be, there's a saturation point with everything. There's a saturation yeah. saturation, and um, sure <clears throat> they require a little more. So so anyway, but I you know they're all great. I like all the stuff. I just, uh, you know um, I, I I don't really like the the uh, that monoculture sort of uh, phenomenon here in the U.S. Uh, you know, you, you go to a reptile show in Europe, and you're astounded with the, the variety uh, that you would see at a show. Um, so there's so many different little uh, kind of niche sectors that people get involved in, and uh, they, they just go to town on some, you know, some odd little gecko species that you'd never heard of before or uh, what, whatever species it is. And uh, I think that diversity um, – helps protect their market, and it also causes intrigue for anyone that's, when you're walking through a show, it just makes people, draws people like a magnet, like, you know, like a moth to the flame to the shows, and I think that's very important. You know, it's, it's not just about um, a quick buck or anything. It's, it has a lot to do with, um, with this intrigue, the, the, the passion that we have in the hobby, um, and uh, I think that's, you know, that's part of what makes a, a European show so different from uh, show in America. So, you know, there's still yeah. a lot of people in America that, that do funny, interesting things, and that's cool. So that's good. Mm. <clears throat> yeah. Anyway, o- Owen is uh, Owen's one of those guys. I'm I'm somewhat one of those guys where you know we have the main stuff we work with, and then we have these little side project things like Owen's real Look, big like and smelly turtles? white what? lips and smelly turtles. Yeah, like, like, like water turtles. Yeah. <laughs> I hate those things. Oh my when, God. When you first started talking turtles, um, you know, uh, there's this guy that's on, on Facebook all the time. He posts the most amazing turtle stuff. And I, and, I, and that's the guy to talk to for turtles. And I, I keep thinking my, my son's really crazy about turtles, but when you started talking turtles, the first thing I thought was, never, you know, I'm, I, I just think the smell and, you know, it, I think everything has everything to do with filtration, but my word, um, you know, it, it's probably easier if you live in Florida and this guy does live in Florida. And so, um, there you go. Yeah, and, and but don't it, don't ever get a turtle because these turtles that I have now are the turtles that my father got me when I was five, and they have now <laughs> come back, and they're twenty five <laughs> years old now. <laughs> so uh, these are twenty five year old turtles that have gone to a friend's pond when I went to college and have somehow made their way back to me. 
So, yeah. <laughs> I have a king. I have a king snake here that I, I kid. I kid you not. I have sold this snake uh, like five times. The last time that I, I say I sold the snake, I got a, my buddy uh, helps me with my, my computer issues, and his son's very interested in reptiles. And and so it's funny whenever I have my computer issues, I'll say, "Hey man, I, my computer's acting up, doing something funny," and he goes. He goes, oh, I said, you know, is there anything your son's interest? We always do trades, uh, reptiles for, for computer work. And this, but this, uh, this king snake, he, he enjoyed it for a while, and then he decided he wanted to switch gears and and sent it back my way, which was very nice. But I swear, this this snake has been sold so many times, and every time, it, it is it'll change hands even after it leaves my my place. A, a few times here just locally, and then somebody will call me up and say, hey, i got this king snake. And I, I said, oh, yeah, well, who would you get it from? And like, uh-huh, and who they get it from? Uh-huh. Yeah, I've had that snake before. Uh, come on, bring it on back whenever you want, you know. And, and uh, so anyway, it's kind of cool to see those animals come back, um, usually. I'm not sure on the turtles issue. Uh, that, I'll let you expound on that. <laughs> yeah, well, the turtles are an accident. The rest of the project that Eric was getting into is, my white-lip pythons, my uh, Timor pythons, and all the other crazy random stuff that nobody would ever really kind of look at, all my liasses and things like that, those are my off-the-cuff other projects I love than it. the carpet pythons. Yeah. So I, lo- I love Timors, man. I kept Timors and, and, and red Timors years ago, and I, I like them a lot. Um, if you if you want a snake to crap on you, um, you only, only <laughs> that's, that's up. the one. That's, ah, the that's the first snake. There you go. No, but I really do like Timors. They they don't get enough enough in the spotlight uh, the, that they deserve. They don't get enough of the limelight. But they're, they're a really neat snake, and uh, you know, um, and not a very common snake really. Um, so yeah, uh, you know, I think it's great. Mm-hmm. White lips, uh, again, amazing species. You know, uh, that's that's the whole thing. It's it's, uh, it's diversity, and, and so uh, you know, yeah. we do a Morelia show right but we we all we can't seem to keep the blinders on and we always see something <laughs> like oh look at that and pretty soon we're going in another yeah. direction as well so yeah. fun and this show doesn't help the show doesn't help because we no. bring people on who are like you were yeah. great yeah you, you get all excited about it and i'm like i'm like i'm like are they and I then need i have some to of those. dig into these exactly <laughs> yeah like i'm gonna get rhino rat snakes now because you told me they're awesome so yeah yeah that's that, that's bad <laughs> it's an addiction, man. I, I I swear I don't know oh, what yeah. you know what what there is about it. My my wife's uh, from Japan, and um, and, and I mean like really from Japan. So, you know, sometimes I tell them my wife's from Japan, and they're like, yeah, sure. So like her parents were. And I'm like, no, she's from Japan. You know, um, but <laughs> but anyway, uh, she she says, oh. You know this guy you're talking to. Oh, he has the animal brain. You know, she always calls it the animal brain. Like, like uh, she's like, oh, you know, I like puppies and I like kittens, and that's fine. But, but uh, you guys have this, this something different. You have this animal brain. Uh, there's a friend of mine, uh, Naya Honda. Um, he's a curator of reptiles at this Moriyama Zoo in uh, Sapporo City. And every time we go to Japan, I go and, and visit him, and he's, he's a really great guy. And uh, when we first went to visit him, um, he picked us up. We, we rode a subway a few different places, to a few different connections or whatever to get to get uh, where we needed to go. And then we're supposed to meet him, and, and uh, we go jump in his in his uh, SUV. And, and uh, um, in the back, I, I, I glanced over and I saw this hawk perch, not like a falconry perch, <laughs> but a hawking perch. And I was like, oh, you're into hawking. You're, 
you're a falconer, you're a hawk. And right away we had this conversation. He didn't speak English. I don't speak Japanese. And, and most of the conversation was either in Latin or, you know, Latin scientific uh, nomenclature. So we're talking, uh, talking scientific names. Or uh, it, was, it was old hawking terms, old falconry terms that, you know, that, that nobody uses that, that language really anymore except – um, people that are into falconry, and um, <laughs> pretty soon my wife, she couldn't even translate anymore. She's like, she goes, I don't even know what you're, what you're talking about. I can't translate. I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, don't worry about it. She's like, you guys are getting, having a good enough conversation as it is. And I think that's, that's part of this. You know, when, whatever the, the connection is, it, it, when people are on the same link and they have a passion about something, it doesn't matter what country they come from. They can really communicate mm-hmm. um, very well you know, uh, just based on their, on their interest in the subject alone. And, uh, a, 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 an incredible herpetologist as well. He's, he's a really neat guy. So, but anyway, cool. yeah, fun stuff. So, <clears throat> so that is awesome. do you want to jump into it right into it as far as, um, locality chondros? Do you want to talk about wild caught chondros? What, what, what were you feeling? You know, I think, uh, I think I want to kind of deviate for just a moment before we really get into that, and I want to talk about something that I think is uh, beneficial to the whole community, um, and uh, it's, uh, this is an asset that everybody can, um, that those in need can, can utilize, and, uh, and that is, uh, is, is good vet care. So many times we see somebody in a situation where they're like, look, you know, I, I live in an outlying area, and I don't have a good vet near me. The vet that I have, you know, he knows a lot about sheep and cows, but he doesn't know much about snakes. And, you know, I've got green trees. What do I do? Or, um, you know, even, even if they're not in such an outlying area, just the vets that are near them, they may be good with small animals, but they don't, they don't know a lot when it comes to the finer aspects of, of reptile uh, vet care. And so this, I was in this situation for like a 10 year span where I was surfing from one veterinarian to the next, um, scratching my head and just going, why, how, how could it be like this? I had one guy, I had a, I had a carpet python, a jungle carpet back in the, uh, on the early, early days, I, I bred some, some crazy jungle carpets. And, um, so I, I went to this vet and, uh, I just happened to bring the, the jungle along because I thought it was a really sharp-looking individual. And I, I brought this uh, snake along, and I, I showed him uh, – I think I was showing him a savu python at the time. And the guy, he says, uh, oh, you know, this snake's got, you know, the, the, the brill, the spectacles, so many are stuck. Look how white its eyes are. And I'm like, no, 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 that's, that's a savu python. That's what color they're – their eyes are, you know, they, yeah, it's normal. They look the pupil. Yeah. It's normal. And he's like, oh no, no, and he's like, he's like going and getting forceps. And I said, listen, we're not doing that. And then I, I just I explained to him like that's what color. He goes, well, I've never seen an eye that eyes that are white. Like, are you sure? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And and uh, I could tell right away that this guy just didn't, um, he wasn't well versed in these animals. And and so many, mm-hmm. you know, at that time I think those were probably some of the very first savus. So. Uh, it wasn't no, and no fault of his own. But then I showed him the carpet python, and uh, he says, "Oh, let me take a look at it." He's, and he, and he, he grabs the the kind of the guler fold right there under the under the chin, and uh, kind of pulls the skin down and looks inside the mouth, and he goes, "Oh, it's got a mouth rot infection. Look, its mouth's all black inside." And I was like, uh, "No, no, you know that's normal." <laughs> and uh, and so pretty soon I realized, you know, this guy's just—it's not the guy that I'm going to go see. He's the type that. Um, 
he knows the problem right off the bat, and he's ready to jump in and treat it, but he really doesn't know, you know, and so sometimes you run into these, uh, or it's just a personality glitch, whatever the case may be, you need to find a vet and a vet that can help you. And so there are some guys uh, that are really an asset to the community that are, are doing uh, this. It's like telemedicine. It's, uh, um, it's a vet-to-vet and client consultation service where even if you lay, live in an outlying area, imagine that now you can go to this vet who's a good guy. He takes care of whatever your, your, your cats and your dogs and but he's just not well versed. Uh, he, she, uh, they're not well versed uh, in in snakes, and specifically in in Morelia. And uh, now you can say, listen, how about we set it, we do this consultation thing? You talk with your vet, and then you put a call into one of these other vets, and it's one vet educating another vet about the proper. Uh, procedures, the proper dosages, exactly how to go about treating these specific animals. And, uh, and so it opens up so many doors for, for both the customer now feels confident to go back into their vet. It, the, the vet loves it because not only is he learning how to treat this client's animal, but it, but it helps him for future clients. So sometimes this, the, the cost, depending on, on how, you, how it's negotiated, could be shared between the vet that's being cons- you know, uh, given the consultation and, um, and the actual client, or it can, it, maybe it's just a, a bill to the client themselves. But, but what it's going to do is it's going to allow you, even if you're in an outlying area, um, to have access to a vet. It's like having that, that bona fide reptile vet there in your pocket and being able to pull them out when you need to, and it's, it benefits the animal, it benefits uh, the keeper, and it benefits the vet. And it benefits the guy who's doing the consultation. It's it's a good win for everybody. And so I I wanted to throw out two names uh, of vets that are doing this right now. And I think, um, you know, before we get into localities, I think that's a a topic that, you know, should really be covered because it allows people better. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of these guys is uh, Sean Michael Perry. Uh, he's uh, He's on Facebook. You can look him up. And uh, and he offers these services. He's out of Illinois, um, but nice nice thing about the the telemedicine is it doesn't matter where you're at. You just you call somebody and you you work out a deal with them. Um, anyway, uh, Sean Michael Perry. Uh, Sean Perry does. He's working on some interesting stuff uh, right now. He's he's working on uh, artificial insemination in reptiles and and he's uh, he's working uh, you know reproductive. Uh, um, strategies in, in in reptiles is a big focus of his and uh and a very knowledgeable guy um came highly recommended and i think he's worth uh worth talking to um another one is is bradley waffa and uh uh you may see bradley waffa on facebook too uh, a really good guy very knowledgeable um he was he was and, on the uh, show yeah, see, there mm-hmm. you go. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so it's, isn't it nice to be able to call somebody who not only are they a, a vet and, and a, um, a very good vet, but but they're also a keeper of the same things that we're, you know, so fascinated with. So I, I just yeah. think that's a, a really good asset. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I would be remiss if I didn't, uh, um, if I didn't share that. So anyway, um, yeah, man, let's get into it. Let's, uh, um, let's go with it. Uh, Locality okay. stuff. So, uh, so I kind of break things up. Maybe, maybe other people break it up the same way, or maybe I break it up differently than others. Um, but when I think of green trees, 
I think of uh, the animals that you find on Craigslist. Who knows what it is? It's the proverbial mutt um, out there, <laughs> and uh, um, it's a green snake on a branch. And uh, so that might be one category. The next category would be designer uh, animals, and they have uh, an incredible pedigree that goes way back. But um, when you get to a certain point, um, maybe in the early part of the pedigree, you're, you're seeing some locality information on there too. But as you get as you get further back, it dead ends as to locality, and it might say Houston Zoo stock, or it may say Trooper Walsh, or it might say uh, you know Eugene Bissett, uh, uh, Ophiological Services, or it might it might just say PNG, which tells you nothing. Um, right. And um, and so it's a it's a dead end. And to me, um, look, I would never kick any of those animals out of my collection. I think they're amazing. But um, I, I kind of joke around. I say, well, those are those are um, pricey mutts. Um, there's there's still a question mark on what what they really are genetically, locale locality wise. But a lot of effort has been put into them. So um, they're. Anytime that you're, you're you're breeding things together, you're making creating a, an interesting mutt. But um, uh, you know different localities together, but that doesn't diminish their value. I think those are amazing animals. That's just another uh, another grouping, and then the, a, a grouping after that would be uh, the pure locality stuff, as pure as we as we like to call it. Uh, pure locality stuff would be another um, another group, and then finally uh, locality designers, where they have both the pedigree and they have the locality information from the beginning. So it's kind of like you have the, uh, you have the recipe to make this cake. And, uh, and I think that all of those are important, loca- uh, uh, important groupings. But um, for me, the, the two that I like the most, just on a personal basis, are, are the, the locality much the locality designers, and, uh, and then the, the, the pure locality stuff. I think those mm-hmm. two, for me, just stand out the most. And uh, I got I got lucky being near Bushmaster uh, Reptiles, so I got to see a lot of animals that were really pretty accurately represented the whole way through. Um, for the most part, um, they're very accurately represented. Um, and, and you know, this whole locality phenomenon is really uh, was started by him. I mean, he started out with gray bands, and uh, and he saw this phenomenon with with. Uh, um, with gray band collectors, I mean, I don't know if you guys were were heavy into the crazy gray band days, but you know, some of those gray bands sold for a lot of money, and and uh, oh yeah, mm-hmm. there's some really impressive stuff out there. Um, but back in the day, you know, everybody wanted to make the pilgrimage to West Texas and and go look for gray bands, and it was, you know, you could see lines of of headlights behind you, and everybody was just crazy for these gray <laughs> bands. But he he realized pretty quickly that, you know, somebody catches a. a a snake in in Loma Alta. Um, well, they're not going to breed it with their lang tree, no way, you know. And they they kept these localities, uh, you know, very specific. And some of them were were so. Uh, uh, I mean, you can go overboard with anything. So, some of them were like, oh, you know, I got this animal in Sanderson. Oh, I caught it on this side of the road on this rock cut, and I found another one on that side. But I wouldn't breed those together, you know. It's it's just you know, it's across the street, you know. But if they're like, nope, I'm only breeding it with animals on this. Side. You know, some people really got fanatical about it. But but um, he saw this and he realized this was um, 
this was an important aspect to the collectors and to provide what the collectors want you have to you have to know what localities you're you're collecting from and then when he started bringing in animals in from Indonesia he applied it to they said well these animals look different from those tell me where these are from and he said okay everything that comes in I want to know you know as best as possible what where these animals come from and uh and it it feeds right into what I like to call the Pringles theory, you know, once you pop, you can't stop. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's like collecting, <laughs> it's like collecting baseball cards. You gotta, you gotta have, uh, you know, whole set. Uh, you gotta you log can't a whole stop set. at one. Yeah. 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 So, and, um, and that, you know, herpers are already kind of wired that way. You know, we, we don't just want one of anything. We, you know, we want pairs and then we want, we want variety. And so I think that's the, the magic of, of locality, especially if if the you know if they're verifiable, if there's some some form of um, validity to it, uh, you know the ugly side of it is that some people uh, will will post a, a label or paste a label on on, a, on an animal um, without really knowing what it is and uh, just to sell it. And uh, I think um, you know that's that's a uh, that's where things get get dirty, and we can't figure out what we're what we're doing, or people it leads to confusion. So I like to see animals that really come with some sort of a valid background um, from from sources that that we we know are um, are able to to uh, back it up, and and you can see the animals like it, it gets to a point where like with babies, um, you know, you take take someone like Ryan Burke or or myself. Um, or Cameron. There's a lot of people that could do it, but there are people that have seen lots and lots of babies and lots and lots of adults, and they know the characteristics, the key uh, kind of defining points to look for, and um, what differentiates one from the other. And there are some that are very uh, difficult. For instance, uh, uh, like Manakwari and Sarong, uh, two animals that, I mean, I think they could confuse the best of us. Um, you know, predominantly in, in, in the wild, those animals are yellow neonates. The reds do in, occur in both of them, but, um, you know, they're, they're not very, uh, very common. And, um, but anyway, uh, you know, these, these are animals that could throw people off because they look so similar. But, you know, as far as uh, geographical distances, there's not too much difference di- distance-wise um, in those animals. But some of these animals really have their, their key defining characteristics that you can pinpoint. And I've really focused on, on that. When new localities come available, I want to be the guy that says, you know, that, that people say, oh, that's the guy. He, he does those locality animals. And, and when, he, when something new comes in, I want to be the guy that, that sold those. And, and there's, a, a, you know, a, a number of them um, under my belt now. Um, you know, I could just, uh, like Nibiri, uh, Lara. I remember when I, when I first posted the first Lara, um, this is back in Kingsnake. The, when I started first first posted a, a Lara, some, somebody messaged me and said, oh, "What are you just making up names now? You know this kind of thing." Cause <laughs> it, it was so unheard of at the time. Lara, like what? And um, they're like, "Come on, there's no such thing as a what, what's this?" Here uh, um, a few years back, I I, uh, I posted the first uh, Wara pen that were available here in the United States, and and um, I think maybe some wild caught animals had come in. Um, you know, from some less than reputable sources, maybe, but but the first true, uh, you know, captive farm bred, captive bred animals, um, 
from Indonesia that came over. I sold those, and when I put them up, uh, it, I remember it caused a little bit of a stir. And uh, um, <laughs> I'll have to tell this is a great story. My my my, my yeah. friend uh, Julie, maybe you've heard of Julie Morellian, um, a great gal. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, she she got on. Uh, uh, one of these sites, I think Morelia Viridis Forum or something, and, and uh, a bunch of people, they just kind of like, it was like dogpile, like, who is this? Who's this guy that's selling this stuff in uh, oh, a new locality? Come on. And it was like, um, uh, you know, everybody chimed in. And it was We were all throwing stones, right? And um, somebody finally called me and said, hey, you got to go in there and check this out because, you know, the stones are hitting you. I'm like, oh. So mm-hmm. I go in and, and uh, I read this stuff, and, and – um, Somebody said something, oh, you know, lure him out, out, ask him lots of questions. Is it a northern animal? Is it a southern animal? Is it, you know, uh, waste his time. And this flesh peddler, that was the term that came out, flesh peddler. And uh, Really? You know, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was awesome, dude. I got to say, like, um, because later on, um, uh, you know, I came out, and, and some people would get defensive about some, something like this, and they would just uh, – um, blow their stack and I don't handle it ever that way when I get on I just like address it exactly as and and provide pictures when I can provide pictures and I just talk exactly through what it is that I'm looking at what's the defining characteristics of this animal and um mm-hmm. you know there's some people that don't believe in in locality at all and you're not going to convince those it's it's like you know it's funny most of those people want to say well have you ever kept any locale specific animals they go oh no no I'm like well then it's like saying I you know I, I hate I hate the taste of pineapple, and like, I hate pineapples. And you say, "Well, have you tr- ever tried one?" No, no. I mean, look how spiky they are. Who would eat such a thing? Well, have you ever tried one? Well, no. But who, who would want to look at it? You know, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, so you mm-hmm. can't really make a judgment. Um, but if you if you have no experience on the matter, but but you know, um, Julie Morellian is, is, is Julie is a very uh, astute keeper. She knows what she's looking at, and I think the big part was. They, they hate to see um, someone who, who may take advantage of those who, who aren't in the know. And, uh, and there are those who would do such things So in, in any right. sector mm-hmm. of the hobby. And so um, anyway, uh, it, it, people came out and finally said, I mean, even, even Buddy Buscemi stepped up and said, hey, I know Harlan. I bought some, some snakes from him very early on, and, and uh, he's a good guy. And, and Jason Stevens and Ryan Burke, a, a bunch of people stepped up and – Anyway, uh, Julie ended up calling me, and she says, "Hey, man, I, I totally jumped the guy. I didn't know anything about, and you know, I'm not one that, um, uh, you know, I just I'm pretty new to Facebook even, but, but uh, at the time I wasn't even on Facebook. But she, she, I got to say, not only did she uh, apologize publicly, but she called me up and said, "Hey, you know, I really apologize. I felt bad about this, and I, dude, I owe you a beer." And I said, "Well, you know, I don't, I don't drink beer, but." Take a milkshake, a chocolate milkshake. You know? <laughs> anyway, but so so kind of uh, you know between her and I, flesh peddler is a term of endearment. Uh, you know, I, um, you know we we all know what the term flesh peddler really means, and it's a very dirty connotation. And sure. um, but but among between her and I, uh, you know it's 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 got its warm, tender uh, feel to it. And she's a sweetheart and a really good gal. And, and uh, it was nice of her to, to take the time. And she even said, "Hey, do you have any? Do you have any of those for sale?" And I said, "Well, yeah, I just sold the last one." And you know, that's the other thing about it is when when things like that come in, um, I try to buy as many of them as I can. I, I try to um, mm-hmm. because you don't know when they're going to become available again. Like the first R facts that came in, um, 
I had seen them in a in a, a friend of mine's collection in Europe, and um, uh, you know, he just sent me pictures, and I was astounded with these animals, and I said, "Wow, oh, man, you know, uh, if I ever see those, I'm going to grab them." And you know, one one day they were at Camp's place, and uh, at Bushmaster, and and um, I was already loaded up on a bunch of blood pythons, and and uh, Ryan was there, and he's like, "Hey, you know, we got." we got green trees and we come, come look. And so we kind of looked and, uh, he's like, well, I don't, you know, I'm like, he's like, I kind of been thinking about getting some of these. I'm like, you know, uh, you should, man, you really should. You're like, you're like, uh, you know, you're sitting at the faucet and you're not taking a drink, dude. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I know. And so he started kind of looking and, and, uh, he's like, and I saw these, I said, Oh my gosh, our facts. And I, and he, we grabbed the tub and, and pulled it out and I saw him. And I was just like, Oh my gosh. And I was already, I was already tapped out, man. I was, I'd already, you know, spent my wad, and I was kind of like, oh, no. I said, man, you should buy those. And he bought all, I told him to buy them all. You know, he bought them all. And that, that is uh, one of those animals is the RFAC, you know, the, the clockwork RFAC. And uh, I'm so mm-hmm. glad that he got that, that group of animals. And that's what you've got to do. You've got to buy um, the group because, you know, I did it with uh, another locality that's pretty uncommon. I've never seen it ever offered before. Uh, Gunyam or Genyam, Gunyam, uh, depending on you know how you want to pronounce it. It's, it can be spelled so many different ways on a map, but it's it's very close to Jayapura, and uh, you know not too long ago I'd found some pictures of of some of these. They were they were neonates. Um, it's a little higher elevation. It's near near the lake there, um, a little uh, but very close to Jayapura. And uh, but the animals as, as neonates they look very similar to to Jaipura, you couldn't tell the two apart. But as they get get older, they just develop loads of blue. And um, I, four of them came in, and I got them, and I sold them. And to this day, I've never seen another come in, and I kick myself for having let those slip through my fingers. And you know, the first Carido, uh, Numfor, Padido, Yapin, uh, Nabiri. I mean, I could just keep going. You know. Um, mm-hmm. And this is the thing when you when these animals come in, you don't know uh, when they're going to come in again. And so, uh, you know, be smart about it. And and if you if you see somebody, even if you're only able to get a few, um, somebody whether it's myself or, or whoever that's, that's offering something you haven't seen before, keep in mind that these animals um, they, they go on a cycle and and they don't always continue to come in forever. Ask anybody that's keeping carouches or brada, the the monkey tail skinks. You know, they used to come yeah. in so cheap, and then now look at them. And uh, right. you just never know when things are going to change. And uh, so you got to kind of keep that in your mind. And, and our goal, you know, any snake that you, I always tell people, you buy a snake from me, I guarantee it's going to die. And they're like, what? And I said, well, look, every snake, anything, that you, anything that's alive is going to die. And anybody tells you differently, you know, they're, they're, they're selling you that bridge, right? But – but it's our job to extend that expiration date out as far as possible and in the interim have as many breedings as possible so that, so that if we don't see them come in again, we have them represented somewhere. And I think that's, mm-hmm. you know, what um, – none of these animals are going back to the wild. You know, none of them are, no. are going to be back in the wild. But, um, and so with that, when we talk about um, locality stuff, I, I do love uh, locality as pure as we can call it. Um, I do love that, and I think it's important to have those animals represented. Um, 
But at the same time, I don't have anything against mixing localities either because, because like I said, these animals aren't going back to the wild. Humans, by their, just the very nature of what we are, we love eye candy, you know, and, and uh, um, when you take this locality and you breed it with that locality, things happen, and they don't look like what you would find in the wild. And um, you may have seen this, this, uh, um, this post where, where the guy took a, um, a carpondro and he bred it with a ball python. And, um, you know, this caused yeah. a lot of uh, upheaval. Um, some people loved it and some people despised it. And whatever your, your stance is, you know, I can't say that I love it. Um, but um, it's intriguing, but it's probably not what I would do. But I think it's interesting. And the fact of the matter is, is it's not, not going to go away. It is, it is part of the, the fabric of herpeticulture. People are going to, going to mix and match different things. And, uh, um, you know, the first guy to breed, um, to make carpondros, um, is a, a really neat gentleman by the name of Chris Jackson. And um, a really cool guy. And he's kind of one of these guys that's in the woodwork. Most people don't know who he is. But long ago, there was this website called uh, Dr. Frankenstein's Creations. And uh, that came about <laughs> a very Jesus. interesting, yeah, oh. yeah, a very, yeah, he's, somebody's rolling their eyes or there, I can just see it. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but anyway, um, something, something uh, interesting, it started very interesting is, is uh, he worked at a zoo, um, San Diego Zoo, and they had this display with a carpet python and a, and a green tree in the same um, same uh, setup, and uh, I think it was like a you know arboreal uh, pythons of Australia or whatever, and uh, they were like, oh, it's no big deal, you know, they're opposite sexes, but you know these these two things weren't going to breed because they're not you know they're not the same species, and then they saw them locked up, and they're like. Ah, well, it won't matter because it's like shooting blanks. You know, nothing's going to happen. They're two different species, and it doesn't work like that. And then mm -hmm. the girl laid eggs, and the eggs were fertile. And they put all the eggs in the freezer. And Chris Oh, my time, God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, see, you know, it's like maybe it's a, maybe AZA or something. I don't know. Or maybe they just felt like, oh, boy, we really uh, screwed up here. And, and um, rather than follow through, they, they, they chucked them all in the freezer. And... And uh, so Chris was astounded with this, and he was just like, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen. They're like, these are really amazing animals. And, and they, they, instead of being put in a, a freezer, this is like a new discovery. We, we, don't, we don't know what's going to hatch out of there, or, or you know, maybe they won't hatch, and who knows. But, but there was no follow-through. I kind of, right when he was telling me about this, I thought, and this is years, years, years ago. Um, when he was telling me about this guy bought a lot of stuff from me. He's really a cool guy. Um, a very talented breeder, um, but like you say, he's kind of in the woodwork. He doesn't he doesn't get out too much and uh, in the public really. But uh, anyway, he, he worked at the t at the time as his volunteer there, and and he said, uh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this next year. When he told me about this thing, the first thing I thought of was, you know, maybe in a jar in Australia somewhere where where populations overlap. Uh, somebody found a snake and they've got it, you know, soaking in formaldehyde, and they have no idea what what this is, maybe it's an integrate, maybe it's a new species, we don't really know, but hatch those eggs out, you'd have the answers. And that's why, you know, scientifically, I think follow through is important. And uh, so Chris says, look, 
they said, well, it'll never happen in a million years. They were at a barbecue on one of the, one of the guys that worked at the zoo on, in his, on his driveway. So they were all sitting in the garage. This California is warm, you know, so they're in the garage in the shade. Mm-hmm. Barbecues are out there on the driveway, and they're cooking, and they're like, hey. Uh, he's like, man, I'm going to do this. And they're like, it'll never happen again in a million years. And he said, I'm going to do it next year. And they're like, they're all laughing at him. And he, and he said, well, you know, if you can do it, I'll make a website for you. And he's like, well, you know, this is kind of a controversial subject, and it might stir, stir the wrong pot. And I don't know that I really want my name attached with it. And they're like, well, we'll make a, we'll make a, a, a website that doesn't say – we'll just call it like – what would we call it? And they're like, Dr. Frankenstein. And he goes, yeah, Dr. Frankenstein's Creations. And he the next year, and they, they, his buddy built him the website, and uh, some of the first customers of that first clutch of Carpondros – um, when almost all of those those first animals went to guys that worked with him at the zoo, and they they were all kind of foo fooing it. He sold them for big bucks. Um, mm-hmm. re- regardless of what what the prices went for or whatever, the guys that were were foo fooing it and naysayers when they saw the animals, it something clicked in their brain, and they're like, I gotta have these, and they and they got them. And uh, then he said, like the next year, he said, Well, now I'm gonna take. Borneos, and I'm going to cross them with ball pythons. I said, now you're really off your rocker, dude. You know, you, you've lost it. These animals from totally different continents. I mean, you, you were talking two Morelia species that live on the same continent. And, you know, you just got lucky, but it ain't happening. And he did that, too. And Jesus. whether you agree with it or you don't. <laughs> yeah, I, right. I love it. I can, I, can, I, just, I can just see him with his, with his head in his hands going, uh. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, but the thing is... He's pushed the envelope, and he's taken what we thought about snakes. I mean, a very educated, scientific uh, mind, you know, um, uh, classically educated uh, people that that had they had one way of thinking, and he's ter- turned it upside down, um, you know, and, and suddenly. You know, then uh, enter Kevin McCurley in the in the scene, and he's making car plots. And you know, um, uh, I think uh, Todd Todd made those uh, um, ball python carpets. And um, you know, all these all these different uh, crosses, whatever whatever we think of them, um, we didn't think it was possible before. And now, and, and then they always say, oh, that well, but they're going to be sterile. But are they sterile? Mm-mm-mm. So that's right. the thing yeah. to me. It, it's fascinating. <laughs> right. um, is, is it right? Is it wrong? You know, we like to we like to call ourselves purists. Um, those among us who say, "Oh, I, I like purebred this or purebred that," but I'll tell you, if you take uh, two sarongs and you know that they were collected 100 meters meters apart, and, and these are both definitely sarongs, right? And you breed those animals together, and um, then you're going to have your holdbacks, and you're going to breed those together, and you're going to have your holdbacks. And over time, even though they are they're still sarongs, they will not match what you get out of the wild, right? Because yeah. we hold on to eye candy. If you're going to hold have holdbacks, they're the human nature in us says, oh, I want the pretty ones. I'm going to keep these two. They're very interesting looking. And so we've already uh, manipulated whether they're, they're pure or not. Soon enough, they don't look like their wild counterpart. And that's something um, the purist has to come to a point, you know, this juncture in their mind where they're like, I see it. This, we can call anything we want to call pure, but it's, we have meddled with it as soon as we have put it into human hands and uh and 
that is, in the very nature of it, whether you like the word or despise the word, that is exploitation. Whether we're doing it for money or we're doing it because we, it fascinates us, um, if, you're, if you're enjoying it, that is some form of you're, you're keeping an animal in a cage. Um, and we have to just come to grips with that. Look, um, the word exploitation sounds really dirty, but it's, uh, it's just saying that we, we're utilizing something for our enjoyment. Whether, it's, whether it gives you monetary gain or not is beside the point. Um, you do, you're doing it for a reason, and you have to really examine yourself a lot of introspection and say, hey, you know, it, where, where do I draw the line? Like, like that meme that you've seen up recently where they have, like, all the animals on the billboard and, uh, and which of these are food you have to draw the line. It starts out with, like, horses or whatever, and then it's, you know, it's got down <laughs> right. to chicken or whatever at the other end. But, you know, it's the same, it's the same with keeping these animals. Um, we, like to, we like to kind of put a feather on our own cap and we say, well, but, you know, I would never buy a wild cot, whatever. I only breed captive bred. Or the guy that right. said, also has wild cots and he says, yeah, but before I would sell anything, I all, I'm always acclimating now. Whatever the case may be, we, we like to find a reason why um, um, maybe it's maybe we really are proud of that those and there's there's reasons to be proud for each of those things but by the same token we have to come to terms with the fact that um we've got an animal in a cage uh, maybe it's it's great great grandfathers uh spend their time in a cage and um it's it's no longer a part of uh the natural world and so if it's no longer a part of a natural world uh, does it really make a difference if some guy decides he wants to breed this with that? Because what we have in captivity is really no longer a direct reflection of what's in the wild. And even when we try to stay pure locality, I mean, look at, look at some of these manaquari that are amazing. Um, and I'll, I'll throw a name out there. Uh, my, my buddy, uh, Gary Scavino, he makes incredible manaquaris. And, but you look at the manaquaris that he has worked uh, diligently on to create, and they're pure. Um, but compare those with with some of the wild caught animals, and some of them are night and day. I mean, some of those, even some of the wild caught animals, um, can turn out spectacular. Um, but anyway, you know, this whole thing about locality, I think it's important that some of us, some people, continue to try to make quote unquote pure, whatever the word pure means, that somebody is still working on that and you you find that unfortunately money gets in the way and people say, Well I can make more money if I make this combination of this, this and this, it's very appealing to the eye. Um whereas somebody who's just breeding pure arrows um maybe doesn't get the same bang for their buck, but they get all the same respect from me. I I, I mean maybe even you more know, so you know, um a thing. Uh, okay, so I'm going to talk as a chondro buyer now, right? I'm, okay. I'm just looking at it from the, um, just as of recently, sure. I kind of feel, um, you know, more confident with keeping them and whatnot. And here's one of my biggest frustrations as somebody that wants to buy chondros. Nobody that I can find breeds number one locality chondros. Number mm-hmm. two, nobody has anything that's entry level. But then I hear mm. from all the chondro people about how they don't want chondros being bought from people that are quote unquote jobbers. Well, right. I, I, I know, don't understand a, that, man. <laughs> I don't get I, it. I, I, I love that you bring. Is this is this Owen? 
talking. No, this is this is Eric. That's Eric. This is Eric. Okay, That's Eric. sorry. Owen echoes this. Yeah. Owen agrees yeah. With well, this. I, I love it. So, so this is a great this is a great topic. I mean, um, mm. you know, uh, Ryan and I were talking about pricing things. Um, uh, Ryan's a good guy, and, and I've known him for a long time. Yeah. Um, you know, we were talking about pricing things, and I said, "Hey, man, I think you can get more for those animals. Why start them out down here when those?" What, whatever the the cross was or whatever it was, I said, they belong up here. And he looked at it, and, and we got to talking about it. I said, listen, um, there's a lot of space between the the $200 condro that you'll find at a, the flea market um, versus the three to $5,000 designer. There's a whole, there's a lot of territory in there. Yeah, a lot of space. And, um, yeah. and I, you know, I think, you know, part of our, our responsibility um, as keepers is not only do we want people, everybody wants to be able to sell something that they're, that they've created. They want to be able to produce something really neat. That's impressive to someone else. But you also need to consider the new people coming in and the new people coming in. Don't want to drop the average new person coming in. Doesn't want to drop big bucks on something that they're unfamiliar with. You're, you're in unfamiliar territory. You want to start out small, see how it goes, see if this species is something that you even like. And, um, and then you want to kind of grow from there. And so I think it's important for, uh, for animals to have different price uh, brackets and things. There, there needs to be affordable animals come in, whether they're pure locale Animals. I think pure locale animals can have just as much value as designer animals. I mean, sure, I, sure. Look, Absolutely. a snake isn't isn't worth anything. No snake is. It's only the perceived value, right? And so that's what the, everything is is marketed based on a perceived value. And so, um, it's important for so these animals to have. Uh, you need to have beginner tier animals and. And then this responsible yeah. part for the guys that are seasoned in the hobby, it's our responsibility to take that that newcomer to the to the industry and culture them up as well, so that they understand what we expect as far as ethics. They understand what we how we say. Look, there's a, there's a million. Um, paths to success right but there are some definite paths to destruction and so we we have to kind of um, culture those people up with that same knowledge that we have we, we need to put our arms around the new guy and, and um eric and i talked about this a little earlier um yes. about about newbies um mm-hmm. that term yeah. newbie when, whenever i hear the term newbie the first thing that comes to my mind is cha-ching bank gold mine <laughs> okay now when i say that everybody goes oh He's got somebody he can take advantage of and make some money, and it has nothing to do with money whatsoever. Um, when I see somebody that's new coming in, what I see is an asset to all of us. They have something to share that, look, we've been on this merry-go-round ride for a long time, and when yeah. somebody new steps on, they bring new elements to it that, that uh, we've, we're too jaded to, to focus on because this is the way we've done it. This is the way we see it happening but so so this way we continue but when somebody comes along with new ideas and injects that in that's how any hobby progresses and i I told uh i told uh, eric that it was like like you have a tool bag and um Mm -hmm. um through life you walk along and whatever you do it, it turns out terrible well guess what? That's a tool. You just realized you learned something valuable and you put that in your tool bag. Oh, I'm not going to do that again. And then 
Yeah. And you, you continue and you find something that really works, and that's amazing, and you put that in your tool bag. One day, you and I sit down um, at, you know, at work on, on lunch break, and we sit down together and we start munching our sandwiches, and I, you've got your tool bag open. I kind of glance down, you're sitting next to me, and I say, hey, man, I didn't know you had one of those in your tool bag. And you're like, oh, I didn't know you had one of those. Hey, you mind if I use your, and I could use your, see, and, and that's what it's all about. It's, um, it's sharing, and that's the gold mine. Uh, I told this story about, uh, about pennies. Um, do, you, do you guys know anything about numismatics? Uh, I didn't know anything about numismatics. I didn't even know what the word meant, but I, I was talking to a customer and uh, mm-hmm. a, a newbie. Right. And uh, right. cha-ching. Um, and and he, he started talking to me about numismatics. And, and at the time, I was interested in uh, the silver prices were going crazy at the time. And, and uh, we got to talking about this stuff. And he said, he goes, oh, I'm big into coin collecting. And he said, you know, uh, back in the day, they used to take a silver dollar and they'd throw it in a, in a quart of milk or a gallon of milk because it would make the, the milk last longer. And I was like, what do you mean it makes the milk last long? He goes, well, they didn't have refrigeration. Yeah. So, so they put – he goes, back then, it's, you know, it's a silver dollar. It was really a silver dollar. Thank inflation for that. But, um, you know, so it had uh, – a majority of it was silver. And, and he says, so it gives off silver ions, which kill bacteria, causing the milk to last longer. And he says, you know, uh, do you know anything about pre-1982 pennies? I'm like, what? Well, no. Well, tell me about well, pre-1982 no. yeah. And this has nothing to do with green trees. I'm going, what, what are we talking about here? And he goes, well, look, pre-1982 pennies are almost all copper. He says, mid-1982, right in the middle, they, they, they started making these, whatever that is, zinc or whatever that's in the, in the middle of pot yeah. metal of some kind. And, and then they have this little thin veneer of copper on the outside. And he says, well, you don't want those. He says, you get the, get the, the old ones, the, the pre-1982 pennies. And he says, uh, uh, those are copper. And he says, they also give off uh, copper ions, these ions that kill bacteria. He says, you know, think about it. When, when you go on, uh, out of town for, with your family on a camping trip and you come back, you know, five days later and your little girl grabs a glass of water, fills it up out of the sink and takes a, a big gulp, she doesn't come down with Montezuma's Revenge because we have copper pipes, and that, that's killing the bacteria that, in that stagnant water. Um, and I remembered when he started talking about this, when I was in high school in a biology class, they had us take a, 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 t- a little, um, like a deli cup full of water. And, um, and they said, well, let's just pour the water, just tap water, pour it in there, and then and take a little pipette and suck some water off, put it on the, on the um, microscope slide and put a cover slip over it, slap it under your microscope and take a look and see what you see. And every day you have to draw what you see under there. And, you know, at the beginning of the week it's pretty boring. It's like water, nothing. And um, or, uh, pretty soon it was like, uh, looks like a piece of hair. It looks like a fragment of, what is that, dust? What, what is well, by the end, you know, it's like a college party in that water bowl. Um, there's mm-hmm. all kinds of funk going on in there. And anybody that takes a snake water bowl and wipes it with a piece of paper towel, even though the water looks clean, you let it sit in your cage for four days, take it out, pour the water out, and wipe that inside of that with a piece of paper towel and look at the funk and gunk. That is, that's living organisms from just the dust that's floating around in the air, landing on the water, and pretty soon, you know, it's like uh, spring break. You know, in Mexico, in your water bowl, and um, and your snake's drinking that. And he said, he goes, wouldn't it make sense to take a copper penny and put it in each one of those water bowls that kills the bacteria, makes your water stay clean a little longer? Because you're still going to want to clean and change your water bowls on a regular basis. But, but now, if you're out of town for four days, and you you, Holy you put crap. all your 
It's a great idea. And um, so I told this story multiple times, and, you know, some people really laughed at it and thought this is the kookiest thing I ever heard of. Um, Tracy Barker and I were talking, uh, and I told her about it. I'm about That's a great idea. Pennies. I'm going to start looking at pennies in my house. And yeah, before yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's, there's this whole collection of nuts out right there that – that, uh, you know, they, they, they laughed about it at first, but, you know, down the road, you know, like a couple years later or whatever, we'll get to talking and say, hey, man, let me send you pictures, updated pictures of my, my whatever uh, um, snake that, that I bought from you. And uh, they'll send me a picture, and in the, in the background I'll see this deli bowl uh, with a penny in it. I kind of go, wow, that's crazy. And it was all <laughs> from some guy who bought one snake from me, who, his very first snake, um, I walked him through everything step by step, and he was so new to the hobby that he came with a different tool in his bag of tricks. And it was amazing. Um, you know, I learned something new. And so when I think of newbie, I, the first thing I think is cha-ching, gold mine. These, these are new ideas that have a potential to come in. Not, not everybody that's going to come in has some, has some cool penny trick to share with us. But, but we won't know if we – if we treat them the way I see so many people treat, you know, every, every one of us that, are, that have been in here for a while, been doing this for a while, I say in here, um, we, we, it gets tiresome when you see some, some questions, some of these questions, that, like the proverbial, is this a yellow belly, um, that the ball python <laughs> people always dealt with, right? But, What's in but, my carbon um, python? Yeah. Right. But, you know, these are the, um, these are the, the things that uh, – um, You've got to, instead of, so many times I see people kind of jump on the new guy that comes in, he asks a question, they're like, there's a search, a forum search function, why don't you utilize it? Well, he's utilizing what he has in front of him right now, and that's you, and he respects your opinion. Help him out. Just, just take two minutes of your time to answer his question instead of with a snide remark that maybe everybody else is tossing stones at the time, but just stop, step, take a step back and say, you know, take this guy under your wing and that's the part that I say is our responsibility because if you don't, then you wind up with the, the yahoos that everybody bitches and complains about in the ball python community. And it'll be in the green tree python community. And it's already happening. You, you see it. Um, right. And so I think it's important for us to culture those guys that are new so that they – look, there are no stupid questions. Like none yeah. of us were hatched knowing how to do any of this stuff, and we were all asking the same kind of questions earlier in our career or the, the lifespan of our hobby, whatever. Um, it's our responsibility to, to take those new guys and treat them with the same respect that we expected when we came in. And I think that helps, that helps any hobby progress. And uh, anyway, so I love, I love the term newbie. I'm like, hey, <laughs> bring them on. You know. See, um, yeah. but, that, but that, is, that is fantastic because I am anal about my water bowls. So if I don't get, if you can give me any trick for trying to yeah. make those a little bit better, that is fantastic. So I swear to God, I will be hunting through all the drawers in my house later <laughs> to try to find pennies that are older than okay. I am, so that I can throw them <laughs> in my water bowls. So. I would say there was these, there was these uh, a whole group of nutcases in the numismatic world that would they would go to the bank and they would they would you know, like like give them whatever it is fifty dollars twenty five dollars however many a box of pennies I think it's twenty five bucks or whatever and they give them a little box of pennies and they have you can even get them on on eBay where you they set, you pour all the pennies in it separates the pennies old pennies to new pennies because they were they were saying well a, a pure copper penny is actually worth like five cents or seven cents something like that it gets worse the, the, the more our economy continues to go in this direction. But whatever, yeah. and they were hoarding.
hoarding these pennies. These they're not snake people. They're just these penny hoarders. And they, you know, they they would like get on some of these uh, some forums or whatever. And they, you know, they say I've got these in my in a basement. I'll never disclose where. And they have like you know buckets and buckets and buckets of pennies. And um, that are pure <laughs> copper pennies, and they're like, I don't know, uh, the preppers gone gone wild or whatever. I don't know what the website yeah. would be, but but you see this kind of stuff, and and they have these penny separators, and it's just kind of interesting, kind of a subculture that I was totally unaware of. And this guy, you know, he told me this penny story, but but there's something to it. I, by the way, I don't think a snake turd in your water bowl. I don't think any amount of pennies is going to help that. So you got that ain't going to help you. No, you got to clean it. Yeah, we got to keep our water bowls clean. And uh, yeah. but it's just kind of a neat idea. And, um, you know, there's a million neat ideas out there that we haven't um, stumbled across yet. You know, uh, and another thing I think is, is important is being willing to experiment with new things. Whether you're successful or not, uh, that, that kind of spirit of, of experimental entrepreneurship, whatever you want to call it, is really important. Uh, every, every year uh, – well, I don't say every year, but but um, sometimes when I'm having a dismal year and I have like, you know, like so few clutches that I'm like, what does it even matter? This year? Then I'll say, wait a minute, let's well, let's experiment. Let's hatch these this way. Let's hatch these this way, and we'll hatch those that way, and let's see what works best for this this go round. Or when I have a lot of eggs, I'll say, okay, now I'm going to take these clutches. I'm going to separate them to X amount of groups, and we're going to we're going to do these breeding or there's these hatching trials. And I think, um, look, that's, that's how we come up with new, uh, new ways of doing things. So this recently, I just did the, the one with the water crystals, you know, these little crystals that you rehydrate and they, they feed crickets, give them hydrate, keep their crickets hydrated or cockroaches hydrated. Um, yeah, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. So, so yep. anyway, mm-hmm. these, these little crystals, I, Basically, I took uh, a tub and I put a bunch of these crystals that were hydrated in it, and uh, and I I submerged another tub inside of that. Well, you know, if it were water, I'd have to have some incredible weights in there, but but with this crystal stuff, it, it it's like stackable water, so it made water all around my other um, like 3D 3D water, um, and. And there's a lot of space in between each uh, whatever kiblet or, or uh, uh, crystalline blob of, of gel water. Um, so it's, you've got a lot more surface area than you would have with just a flat surface of water inside of your incubation tray. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so uh, I still, on the inside tray, I still put the, the, um, uh, the substrateless method where you have this kind of, I say, hammock or, or uh, little little flooring that kind of hovers above uh the rest and uh, uh and that that way if if condensation does occur it has a that water has a place to run to and collect instead of sitting there with your eggs um so anyway I put that in there and then i just stripped stretched some saran wrap over the top and said let's let's roll with it and see how it how it works and um you know i i uh i had a, a clutch of chondro eggs that i, I didn't realize uh what exactly was going on at the time this this snake had been treated with some antibiotics it was a a breeding loan deal between me and a local guy and this this snake had a, a respiratory infection and um anyway uh she had been treated with antibiotics all the whole time that she was gravid and then when she finally laid eggs and we were trying to hatch these eggs out that i i lost all those eggs but I didn't. I didn't throw the towel in and say, "Well, this is an, in, an unsuccessful method." I continued experimenting with it, and I got eggs cooking in the in the incubator right now uh, using the same method, and they seem to be working just fine. And um, I, you know, I think 
of course, one clutch of eggs isn't going to ter- determine anything. So you're going to have to keep experimenting um, uh, from one species to another. It might not be as successful for one species as it is for another. But whatever the case may be, you know, one, one clutch tells you a, a very limited amount of information. So you have to kind of kind of stick with it. And when you have um, when you have a curveball thrown at you where you lose a whole clutch of eggs, it's really difficult to say, I'm going to try that again. But it's, it's, it's pertinent. It's, it's important to keep, keep trying because uh, you might stumble across something that works even better. And, uh, sure. So I think this, you know, uh, well, like, I don't know, I, I talk in analogies a lot, but I think if you're, you know, uh, if you're if you're going from New York to California on this super highway that has, you know, 19 lanes or whatever, and um, you can be in the fast lane and you can be in the slow lane, and there's a lot of different lanes that will take you to California on this thing, right? There's also a lot of off ramps that will lead. <laughs> you'll be end up in Toledo. If California is success, um, then then you've got to find a path and you've got to maybe venture forward where nobody's taken this path before and hope that you're going to wind up in California. When you find out you're not, well, then you know next time not to take that off ramp. You know, it, I, I think I said to to Eric that it was like uh, we're all in the roots of the tree, and if if enlightenment, sunlight is the goal, um, there's a lot of different paths to, to get to to the to the light, and there's no right way one single right way there's a lot of different right ways that work but there's also a lot of different wrong ways and you know we love to we love to share with everyone when something works out fabulous but we're not so great about sharing when things are a total disaster and i think it's just as important to share the total disasters uh with the rest of the community as it is um the, the successes because that's how we really um you know sometimes it's better to know what not to do than what to do and uh, that goes right back to this, this thing with the, the, the people who are new to it. Um, the more that we help the guy who's below us, the later that same guy can be an asset and, and reach his hand back and help you. Um, it, so it's, uh, you never know where people are going to take your idea and expound upon it and, and improve your idea. And I think that's, that's what I like about, you know, whether you're, you were college-educated um, or you're, you, you learned it autodidactically you, 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 or self-taught. Um, all of that education, education is like, uh, you know, like when the trash man says, uh, well, you know, I'm a, um, a sanitation engineer, you know, but it's a yeah. fancy name. Education is a fancy name for sharing, sharing of information. And um, so, you know, that's, I think that's the, the, the golden thing about this hobby is, is we're all – there are no experts. Experts don't exist. Um, we're, we're all kind of stumbling along blindly looking for the next answer, uh, you know, hunting, hunting for a solution to a problem. And, and thank heavens there's somebody ahead of us who puts their hand back and says, hey, let me help you along here. And later they might help us. So right. anyway, yeah. I'm off my soapbox. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I love, I love locality stuff. I like I – like, all the, the the differences that they bring, um, some of them are very subtle. I really like new localities, and there's there's some that I'm um, I'm working with currently. Um, those t- the Tamika, I've, I've posted a few Tamika up recently. Um, I've been actually trying to for about 20 years. I've been trying to get Tamikas, and uh, you know, every every so often, you know, I would ask uh, um, 
one dealer or another, hey, do you get any Tamikas? Well, they finally just like, you know, like I'd be on the phone with them, like, and I don't have any Tamikas, you know, that kind of thing. It was like a joke, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, um, but you know, I, I was always interested. And then when they finally, just recently, they kind of started to trickle in, you know, um, there's a lot of unrest that, that had been um, genocide in, in that area. And there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, political unrest in, um, in in the Tamika region, and uh, so for a long time it was very difficult to get stuff in from that area, and that's happening all over uh, uh, Papua New Guinea, whether it's the Irinjaya side or you know West Papua side or or uh, or what. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah. So so Tamikas are something that I I saw again a European dude, a friend of mine in in, in Germany actually so, showed me pictures, and I was like, oh man, well, those are amazing, and. Uh, um, they don't all look amazing, but the ones that I saw looked amazing, and they scored this image in my brain that I couldn't erase. And so I had it was on this, you know, this hunt I must have Tamika. And uh, so when they when they started coming in, I was like, anything that came in, I was like, get my hands on it, grab it, grab it. And um, those the, the the standouts are absolutely amazing. And um, believe me, they'll charge you for the standouts. But but um, of course, but they they are really something. You know, I like the. You know they're not predominantly red or they're not predominantly yellow. You can have both, and the scorchers can be both uh, red and yellow. And you can get some that look kind of mundane, but you know they have the potential in there. Um, even those that look kind of mundane, there's so much in a single clutch of green trees, whatever the locality is. Uh, designers will certainly vouch for this um, for animals that even you know aren't even locality animals, but they're they're this uh, you know menagerie of of different genetics in their background you know in one clutch uh there's there's so much variety um i told this story rico and i were talking one time and he said he goes oh man we were talking about this and i said something about you know designers uh we were joking and calling calling them you know glorified mutts um lovingly we both li- like those animals so so don't take it wrong uh if you like designers <laughs> but um but anyway, we were both kind of joking about, yeah, you know, and um, and he said, you know, what's so funny is, uh, is so many times you sell you sell something off, and then you see it again later, and like, ah, why did I do that? You know, look at this thing. We'll, we'll look what it turned into. And, and uh, mm-hmm. Ryan and I would talk, and Ryan would say, uh, Brian Burke, and we would say, uh, well, you know, chondros are the thinking man's game, and they really <laughs> are. Um, you know, you you. you you don't know what gender they are uh, if you're smart about it um, until they're either 100 grams or a year of age. You don't know what they're going to turn out looking like until they go through their ontogenic color change. Um, and so it causes you to hold back more than you might with any other species, and it makes you really plan ahead. And when you're buying stuff, the, the smart guys, they don't buy onesies and twosies. They'll say, well, I'll take f- like five because they understand that um, some of these might not be the right gender, um, some of them are going to turn out better looking than the others, and I want to be able to hold back what I really want. And uh, so, so anyway, um, yeah, I was going somewhere with that, and I lot, the train jumped to the track. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, All right. Yeah, yeah. But uh, anyway, um, you know, I think so. Uh, when it comes to um, to green tree pythons being this this thinking man's game, uh, back to this Rico story. Rico said, uh, this gal came to me with this, this tub, and she said, you've got to see this snake. And uh, this, this gal that I've known for a long time, she comes back, and she shows, she goes, you've got to see this thing. And she opens up, and she shows, shows me this green tree python. And 
She's like, wow. He says, really spectacular. And he's like, well, what do you want for it? And she's like, well, it's not for sale. And he's like, no, nah, <laughs> come on. Of course it's not for sale, but everything has a price. What, I mean, really, what do you want for it? And she's like, I'm not selling this to you. I bought this from you. And uh, <laughs> so he goes, what? You, you, no, you didn't. She's like, yeah. And so she t- rattles off the, the ID number and, He's like, oh, come on, let's go back. And so they go inside, and they're looking on the, on the files and he's in the computer, and he's, and he's like, that, is that one? I can't know. Let me, yeah, let me see that snake again. And, and he said, it blew my mind. He said, I, I held back all the animals that I thought were going to be spectacular, the really interesting-looking babies. They grew up to be a green snake on a stick. And he goes, uh, <laughs> this, this, this thing that I sold that just looked so mundane – turned out to be spectacular and he's like it changed my whole way of thinking he says now when i'm going through a clutch i don't pick the ones that look really spectacular he says i pick a smorgasbord of everything he says it caused me to have to hold on to more than i had intended to hold on to because i didn't know how they were going to turn out and um and that alone has an effect on the overall market value of everything that we've got um the, the buyers that are that are in the know want to purchase more than one at a time because they understand how it works. And they also understand that if you're buying in numbers, you probably get a little better deal on the price. And if you buy them in yeah. babies um, and you're going to do all the work of getting the animal started, they understand that, hey, I'll probably get a little better a deal on it. And um, whatever the case may be, um, they're buying a group of animals, and that's, the, the breeder loves that, right? But at the same time, he's got his holdbacks, and he's like, oh, this guy wants to buy five, and I, you know, I have three to offer him other than my holdbacks. You know? So it's, it yeah. really plays this interesting um, – it's unlike any other market. You, know, you can't compare it to ball pythons. You can't compare it to any morph market, really, because um, so much of this is uh, – it kind of reminds me of, of Amazon tree boas. I love Amazons and emeralds, and uh, I put a lot of time and energy into those as well. And, um, you know, you kind of get this smorgasbord where you're not – and those animals, you know, Amazons really can change as they develop, as they mature too. And so it causes you to have a little more pause before you just say, oh, yeah, I'm going to sell that. You know, you, you kind of have to hold things back, and, and uh, it, it's a thinking man's game. It really is. So I love it. You know, uh, it adds a little another layer to it. It's not so simple like, like well, I'm, I got a Mojave and I'm going to breed it with something else. We're going to make some more Mojaves. You know, it's not like that. You know? <laughs> it's no, nothing's cut and dry. You know, right. it's uh, right. It is. It is what it is. Hey man, I right. got to tell you something cool. This radio show rocks because. It's, it's international. I mean, anybody anywhere. I had friends, friends in, in crazy different countries that were like, hey, "It's going to be three in the morning when I want to watch your show, but I listen to your show." I say, "Hey, you can catch it later. Isn't that cool?" And yeah. I mean, so that's <laughs> you know, it was like yeah. global sharing. I like global sharing. That the other cool aspect about it is is that we're doing it over the phone. So yeah, in a radio show, you know. Uh, for all I know, you could, I could be out on my front porch in my boxers. I mean, who would know? <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I'm not you know, got, any, got any ideas of what I'm wearing right now. But, you know, <laughs> no, <I'm>, <laughs> let's just say it's, uh, I'm comfortable. But right, anyway, you know, I, I think, comfortable. what a cool, what a cool format. This, this, this show is really, uh, um, it's, it's comfortable and inviting. <laughs> uh, no, but reason, reason we've done 250 episodes. If we weren't welcoming and <laughs> yeah, inviting, we probably would have stopped at four. 
uh, yeah. some guy sitting on his couch, you know, and eating eating pizza or whatever, and, and he's doing a, a show with uh, yeah. with worldwide broadcast. That's Not right. Cool. Yep. So, um, so those are so, the good ones. So, I'm just curious, like, what are some of the char- You talk about Tamika, but like, what are some of the characteristics that you're shooting for with um, with breeding them? Like, what's your plans? What do you hope? You know, I. I want to do, um, and we're already. I'm, I'm working on this with my friend uh, Ian Bissell um, from from S and J Reptiles, and uh, we're, we're in this together. And it's, and I've, I've got a few other people. Uh, um, I, I own some with uh, Kenny Ricicci, um, an, another a real young guy, but a real whippersnapper. This guy's somebody to look out for in the future. Um, you know, I, I've got a, a, a Nate Blair. Uh, another young guy that's that's uh, he's working on on some different projects. Uh, uh, Tamika, as well as another locality, Bantanta is another one that I'm working with. Um, it's fairly new uh, to the scene. And um, oh, Kenny and I have some uh, have Wosi too. Uh, those these are all different different localities. I think are really um, the new stuff is is fun. So my goal is to produce more pure. Tamika bred to Tamika. I would like to do uh, red to yellows, and and I would like to do reds to reds, and I would like to do yellows to yellows. And we have the the genetics there to to be able to do that. And I also want to do outcrosses. And uh, so I, I'll uh, I'll post pictures later, and you'll see how lame my caging really is. Um, but I'll post pictures later on my Facebook page, and um, and uh, I've got so far we've had uh, a pairing. I don't know. You know, you, you can't count your chickens or your snakes, um, but but uh, we've had a pairing with uh, a pretty spectacular male, a, a high blue male that was a red neonate. Um, uh, he's posted on my Facebook page, and um, and that that's one I actually kind of plugged the show. Um, I put put him one of them that I plugged the show with. Um, anyway, we put him with a patternless uh, Jayapura animal, and and we've seen some locks there. Uh, we put him with uh, a blue uh, Manakwari female. Um, she was a yellow neonate, but uh, it, it displays a, a considerable amount of blue. And um, and saw some locks there. And then we put him with a, a, a Biak Aru and uh, a pretty nice-looking girl. Um, lots of nice speckling on her and big, big white blotches. And we and uh, we had a pairing there. I had planned to put him with uh, with a female. Tamika, uh, that is a red was a red neonate, but this girl's got some issues, and we're we're dealing with that right now. In fact, I was at the vet's office today, and so again, like I say, I really think having access to a great vet. You know, I I deal with this a gentleman, uh, Dr. Paul Bingham, and I uh, couldn't say anything but awesome about him. He's just a really good guy, busier than heck, but uh, always takes the time to help me and and. Uh, you know, we, we 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 scratch each other's back, so to speak. I I, I helped him uh, when he was setting his practice up here, and uh, um, and he's helped me all the way along. And it's just it's been really a great camaraderie. But but anyway, um, yeah, that animal's not ready to breed this year, and and we'll work her through her issues. Uh, these are these animals are wild caught um, animals. Any of these, if you're seeing new locale. Um, nine times out of ten, new locale animals are going to be. When I say new locale, the locality's been there forever, but they're newly available to the hobby, or, or they've, they've been, you know, they've come so so spottily that that uh, they aren't very well represented in the hobby. And so, um, so generally, 
those animals are going to be wild caught to begin with, and that's a very controversial subject. Um, as of recently, you've seen a lot of stuff maybe about uh, wild caught green trees. Um, and yes. so anyway, uh, you know, uh, like uh, cofus, uh, all those cofus that, that they, you'll see this always goes in this, this cyclical pattern where where these mm-hmm. animals are really available for a while, and then suddenly they're just not. I mean, I, I sold a lot of those cofio animals um, when they were available, and, um, and you know, uh, and, and then suddenly they're not available. And um, uh, it, it goes this way with all of these animals, especially if they're animals that are coming in as, as, as an adult. Um, that's not something that that was hatched on a farm. And I, I'll tell you straight up, this this controversy with wild caught stuff, um, I see both sides of it, and I understand both sides of it, um, you know, very completely. And uh, I think sometimes the way we handle things is not necessarily the the way that we should handle them. Um, I talked with uh, with a great guy, uh, Bill Stiegel. Um, I'm sure you've had him on the show. And uh, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, great dude. And uh, we had this conversation recently um, about, uh, you know, there was another, uh, there was, there's been a few sellers here recently that were posting um, wild-caught animals up, um, you know, for sale. And, um, you know, one thing I think is when we ask the question, is this captive bred or wild-caught, if the seller answers the question honestly and he says, it, you know, it's wild-caught, we can't jump on this guy and throw the books at him and, and read him the right act and attack. It's not the right way to handle the situation because, um, because he was honest. When a guy lies to you, that's a totally different subject. You know, but the last thing we want to do is um, ask them the question, and when they're honest, then we pound on them. I don't think that's the, um, the right solution to, to the potential problem. Um, some of these guys, they get they get animals in and they sell them just as quick as they, they come in the door. And, and like Bill said, hey, man, I, I've seen so, so-and-so. I've seen him sell these animals. He even had them for a week. He admitted it right there that he just had this, got the animal a week ago. I said, yeah, I, I wouldn't doubt it. But that same individual is someone who also would call me up and say, hey, uh, I have a problem. This aro won't feed for me. Uh, and he'll send me a picture. And it's a stellar-looking aro. I mean, it was selling a heartbeat. And... Um, he says, this, I'm, I'm having trouble. What, what would you do to, get, do to get it started? Or whatever the problem would be, this guy takes the time to call me and say, hey, you know, here's the issue that I'm well, – how would you treat this? How would you address that? And um, i got to hand it to a seller who – look, um, not, not everybody's ethics runs the same. We know this. But um, somebody that takes the time to really care for the animal um, – Maybe we have to triage. If the guy's a jerk and um, is a is a total flesh peddler, a flipper type, um, and is dishonest, we, let's let's judge the, each individual on their own merits. Um, there's a lot of people that sell animals that are wild caught, and they're they're not mm-hmm. just the retail seller. They're also the wholesalers. Those that guy he had this guy had no clue that it was against the law to send wild caught green trees to the United States, and it's not. And there's every importer that brings green tree pythons in has brought wild-caught green trees in. That's a fact. And um, yeah. um, they're not saying, please send me your wild-caught green trees. And the, the Indonesians, when they're sending them, they're all, they're all going to – everything's farmed. Oh, yeah, it comes off the farm. Yeah, it's all farmed. They'll t- tell you everything this way because they know how it works. And 
I'm not saying that the system is right. In fact, it's not. But it is the way it's going now. And the truth about it is that um, too much too much barking won't cause a little fluff. Um, there, the powers that be are the type that throw the baby out with the bathwater. They they won't mm. shut they won't shut down wild caught green trees coming in. They won't shut down all green trees coming in. They'll shut everything that comes in from Indonesia down. That's the way they handle it. Right. They say, oh, oh sure. they're not playing by their own rules. Shut it off. And really, that's detrimental to all of us. When when there are entities um, that are looking to shut the trade down completely, completely, as as it is. I mean, even if you even all the captive bred stuff, they're like, it shouldn't be a, you shouldn't be able to even keep these. You know. So um, the the other side is, look, diversity is what we need. Every time you've when you've got new bloodlines coming in, and I. Look, when we go back to exploitation, um, I don't really care to see um, truckloads of BIOX come in again and again and again, dumped on the masses and wild-caught at that. And then people, um, they'll be calling you and saying, what do I do with the snakes? You know, it's breathing bubbles. you know, they don't know anything about the animal, and they, they start out with, with something that could be very difficult for even a seasoned keeper um, to have a, you know, great success rate with. So, uh, I, you know, while I don't want to see that, we, regardless of whether it's uh, – hang, hang on one second. Regardless of whether it's uh, captive bred or wild caught, um, we need to have – we, hang on just a second. Sorry, we've got a little uh, chaos here. Yep, no problem. <laughs> I've got a, I, I've got a three-year-old that's like, Daddy, I need to go potty, I'm, and I'm trying to go. <laughs> uh, deal with that. that didn't work. Yeah, yeah. I was outside, and my wife's like, Oh, I'll, I'll keep them all inside. I'll, I'll, I'll watch it. And I'm like, Okay, that's cool. But I think she's watching some something on on TV and got distracted. So anyway, here we are. Yeah. Um, you know, I, it's it's important that that. Uh, that an influx of new blood continues to come in, whether it's on a trickle basis, um, and the animals then go to go in the right hands. You, usually, when there's a price on something, um, the people who are going to buy it are the people who have some experience. Um, you know, I cut my teeth on, on a lot of the old herpers, older herpers. They cut their teeth on the wild caught stuff because that's all that was available. And so, it, you know, thank heavens that people like, well, look at, look at Chuck Vogel with these Kofi. I mean, isn't it an asset that he's, he was able to continue working with those animals and get them to where they are, and now we've got animals that are just captive-bred progeny of captive-bred progeny of cap, you know what I mean? This is, right. mm-hmm. that's what we want. And so I think um, uh, new blood... Um, is important, and I, I think new localities are. It's like uh, a, another blob of p- paint on my palette. The more the more uh, colors I have on my palette, the more vivid my my painting. It doesn't mean I'm going to be a better painter. Um, it just means that there's mm-hmm. I, I have more intricacy to the to this tapestry that I'm, you know, this, this painting that I'm working on, and that's that's important. And also having fresh blood. We don't want these animals to wind up like like inbred trigonocephalus um, or like uh, like dumeril's boas that are you know so inbred and and, and uh, that's why I think it's important for some and 
Well, I, I received a lot of messages about this whole scenario with the with this guy that was posting stuff up, and people, I think a lot of them were they were confused, and and a lot of times people would say, oh, those green tree python, and this is what I got. It was like. Green Tree Python people, why are they such elitists? Like, they're going to jump on this guy um, because he's selling uh, these wild-caught snakes, and really it's only to protect their interests um, because they're working with these expensive designers. And I'm like, no, 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 you're way off base. That's not where that came from. Mm-hmm. This guy's concerned about someone who's new to the hobby like you, and they don't want to see them be taken advantage of. But, but if that's the case, then when someone's telling the truth, Instead, um, instead of allowing the porcupine quill to jump out and, and be abrasive in a situation like that or, or kind of on the attack, we need, to, we need to grab that guy and put him under our wing and say, um, maybe a comment like, oh, it's, it's well caught. So this is probably not a great um, choice for a beginner, but it might be great for someone who's more seasoned and understands green tree pythons. A beginner should start with a captive bred animal, something to that, yeah. to that effect or a, you know, and, and um, we've got to culture these sellers up as well as the buyers so that they, they all understand what's expected of the community at large, what, what the community at large, um, the, the people that everyone looks up to, what they expect, too. And um, instead of – look, it never helps to come across um, on the attack. It's never going to – you're never going to convince somebody that way. But if you bring them into the fold and you say, look um, – this is a more respectable way of doing it. Some people are going to listen and some flat aren't. And those guys who flat don't want to listen, they do themselves out of the business. They, they get a, a negative reputation off the bat. And pretty soon they're, they're off selling cars or something. You know what I mean? I don't know. I use the yeah. car a lot. Whatever. Uh, you know, at, the same, at the same time this was happening, um, I, I felt like I, I received all these messages and I was trying to correct people. I said, look, these people are coming from a, a you know, I, um, Bill Stiegel was one of them that, that mentioned this. And I talked to Bill Stiegel before I went on the show because I just wanted to say, hey, man, I'm going to talk about this. He's like, no, go, go right to it. He's a sharp guy, and I knew right where he was coming from before we even talked just because I see posts from him. He's a sharp guy. He's, he's friends with my buddy, uh, my, my buddy, my buddy, buddy, um, uh, Bassini. <laughs> and, and, and uh, um, the, you know, these, these people, uh, they, have, they have a code of ethics that everything they said to, to the seller was absolutely on the mark true. Um, he was unaware of a lot of it. And he's like, what are you talking about? I mean, illegal, what? I didn't do anything illegal. I just, I just bought this from a wholesaler. I'm, I'm just, this part of my business I do, I sell a lot of different animals. What, what are we talking about? And he was just oblivious to it. And so instead of attacking right. someone like that, we need to really reach out to them and say, okay, well, this is, you know, this is how, you know, in a nice way, this is how it should be done, and this is how it shouldn't be done. And this guy's... Uh, um, the seller was Daniel Solis. I just, I'll just throw, throw the names out there. I don't care. Um, and he really, Excellent. he really took the time to, to call me and, and, uh, uh, like on this recent one was this Aru, uh, who another really good dude, uh, Ryan Wilson ended up with and, uh, a, a very astute keeper, um, and, and breeder. Uh, and, um, anyway, uh, he went and saw the animal and he said, look, you know, I can make this animal thrive, and I want this animal. And, and he ended up with it, and I was so happy to see it in good hands. Was I, was I excited? I, did I want that animal? Sure, but more important than that was to see that that animal, it was a st- 
stellar aru. But to see that animal uh, in the right hands, and you know, Dan, Daniel was—he really did not want to sell the animal. But but the more he realized that Ryan was the guy, Ryan Wilson was the guy there in his face that understood how how to do it. Um, he's like, well, this is the right thing to do, and he did it. And I think that was—that's great. But um, there are some sellers out there that are true flippers, and. Um, they attack themselves. We don't have to attack them. Let let them yeah. bury their themselves. They'll do it. They, you know, the trash takes itself out. And and uh, um, and I, and we see them up there every day. The ones who do that. Some of the trash doesn't get taken out as quickly as we'd like. But you know, um, <laughs> it's not our job to be the police of of everybody out there. But at the same time, it is our job to to try to culture not only the coolest green trees or in Morelia, whatever, it's not our, it's not only that, but it's also our job to culture up the customers so that we, we, so that we don't end up like, Oh, this ball Python people. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, <laughs> right. I don't know. I don't know. You know um, we talked a little bit about locality stuff and, and what pure, uh, what the word pure means. And I used mm-hmm. Aru's uh, with, with, with Eric earlier uh, when we talked the other day and, uh, right. Uh, David, David Haston is a really uh, a really cool guy who who works with with Pure Aru and um, um, a fun character, knowledgeable as can be about uh, parasitology and um, um, a, a, just a good good all around dude. Anyway, um, him and I were were talking and we were talking about look, you know, people say, well, this is an Aru. Well, what does that mean? This is an Aru, and um, you know, it's not Aru Island. It's Aru Islands. There are a lot of islands in that little archipelago, and and um, the, the animals that come from one island show differences to the animals that come from another island. Some may have a yellow belly, some may have a blue belly, some have kind of a cream belly. There are differences in those animals, and so if you're breeding two animals together and you're saying, "Oh, I'm a purist and I'm breeding two aru together," well, how pure are they? You know, and this is the problem when I say it enters human hands; it's already muddled. There's there's so much that we don't know. Um, you know, aside from these, I mean, Aru's are, there's a locality that's been around forever, you know, um, those are one of the, like, like Aru's and Beocks, you know, like, um, right. the stuff that came into the, the U.S. to begin with, the kind of the founders, Marokis and stuff like that, and, mm-hmm. and, um, and even so, you know, I, I remember when I sold some of the first farmed, uh, the, the very first farmed, uh, Maroki that came in off, off the original farm there, um, I, I sold those, and I had one gentleman, um, uh, I won't name names, but one gentleman who came back and he—I sold them to him. Of course, they were little yellow neonates, and um, and, he, and he came back and he was like hot on a firecracker when this animal started going through its ontogenic color change. He's like, "This is not a Maroki, you know. It's got a oh, these are butt ugly arus, you know, and, and they've got a white speck here or there." And that was before people really understood that that um, you know the white in arus and the white in Marokis. And the white in Cyclops doesn't always translate through once we breed it in captivity. And um, so he was, like, throwing, <laughs> throwing the book at me, like, yeah, you're, and, I, and I, I told him, well, look, it really is what it is, and, you know, I don't have any reason to lie to you. And, and then later he came back to me after it kind of became, you know, I didn't talk to him for quite a while. He was, like, done with me. And um, that's fine. I just handled it nicely and said, well, you know, I'm, I've represented as best as I can. I, I'm, I'm certain that that's what they are. And later he came back and he said, hey, you're right, man. Those are Marokis. I just didn't know because we didn't know about the white thing. And I, I think there's, you know, that's something I have a theory about why, why white 
uh, may not translate. And, uh, you know, it's just a theory. But, I was uh, going to ask think, you that. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah okay. Well, I think, uh, you, you know, when you get uh, white tree frogs in uh, dumpies, um, the wild-caught yeah. animals have this vibrant green, and then when they darken up, they almost become this mahogany color, um, like a reddy, reddish, rusty brown, dark, really interesting. And then uh, when you look at the ones that they call Australian dumpies, that's just captive-bred white tree frog. They didn't come from Australia for sure. But um, but those, it's the same species, um, and they're certainly uh, of most likely of, of Indonesian origin, just bred in captivity. Those animals, they look almost blue. They have this blue, kind of gr- blue look to them. When they start getting yeah. somber, they look they look kind of a dark, dull gray. Um, uh, both are very interesting, but um, I, I think that that is because of a, a lack of, of full spectrum lighting. And when I'm saying full spectrum, look, you can you can go on the market and buy the most hyped up. Um, what, however many Kelvin um, artificial full-spectrum lighting that you want, it doesn't compare to sunlight. Um, and yeah. so from, from the tadpole stage on, um, this animal is exposed to whatever frequencies of light um, turn it to the frog that it is. And I think that that combined with the diet in the wild um, – is astoundingly different. You know, they're eating a smorgasbord of critters who ate a smorgasbord of critters um, or plants, and and all those whatever they are, beta carotenes or whatever it is that that complement color. I think uh, it, the same thing falls true with green tree pythons. Um, the, the, for some reason, that white, uh, you know, like like you've never seen a green snake before, because green snakes don't exist. There's no such thing as a green uh-huh. snake, right? You know. Um, and I say that because, you know, there's there's layers of of skin. I don't know if you guys already know this, but but there's um, there's an iridophore layer, and the iridophore layer lies kind of closest to the to the, the deepest within the integument within the within the skin, and it's kind of like a uh, like a mirror refracting light back. And then you've got a cyanophore layer and a xanthophore layer, and these the light comes through those penetrates those layers. It hits that iridophore layer and it bounces back and it pops you right in the eye and when you that's what you perceive as whatever color the colors that are filtered through that iridophore layer or bounce back from the iridophore layer and and are filtered through cyanophore which is blue um and xanthophore which is uh yellow and yellow and blue make green green yellow and blue make green (laughs) so we perceive it as a green snake and so um you know, and, and that goes to, like, Kofu and things like this, where, it's, you know, is it a hormonal shift, whatever it is causing these, um, these pigments to, to change? Um, you know, like, you, you get a hormonal uh, color shift and the snake turns blue. We've seen some of these incredible, uh, like, uh, Vladimir Odinchenko uh, posted a picture of this. It, it, it was a F2 Biak, Aru, Aru Biak, whatever, um, animal, and uh, and when it's going through its hormonal shift, uh, it, it becomes a white snake with blue specks all over it. Um, I mean, absolutely an incredible animal. Um, so I, I tend to think, you know, aside from with, with Arus and, and Marokis and, and Cyclops, anything that shows a lot of white Bantantas, I, I would presume, we'll, we'll find out with, on the Bantantas, um, that by not being exposed to those... Um, those frequencies of light that, that we're, we're losing it and we're 
we're subjecting them to uh you know we're subjecting them to to a diet that is missing a lot and uh i mean uh really missing a lot right uh, the the diet right. uh, when we when we're feeding something you know uh this is one of those things like a, a prolapse in neonate green trees is is a a very common thing um but uh, vladimir he did this thing where they get wild caught uh girls that were gravid uh, he was the the manager of the of the farm uh over there in indo and uh you know he died shortly shortly after rico died but a really incredible guy i mean hatched out more green tree pythons than anybody in the world hands down um and uh so he's got a lot of data in his head that I was hoping he he talked about maybe writing a book and it, it just never came to fruition but but um anyway uh he said you know I think I I know the reason that these animals prolapse and he said well when you get these wild caught green trees and they're gravid and they lay eggs and the babies that hatch out almost none of them ha- you never see this prolapse problem but with our captive bred animals we start seeing this prolapse problem. And he said, well, it's a nutritional deficiency. Um, that's actually, the parents have the nutritional deficiency, these captive bred parents, because we're feeding them this consistent diet of, of rodents. Well, um, that are fed this consistent diet of lab chow, whatever. Um, right. And, uh, and so, uh, so one of the causes of, of malnutrition is that these, the, the neonate snakes that hatched, they're feeding on the yolk. Uh, then they they mature, or, or as they're as they're growing, uh, they prolapse because they they shed teeth, and all snakes shed shed their teeth, and they're swallowing those teeth, and the the teeth come out in the fecal bolus in a turd, okay. But when you when you're shedding boatloads of teeth because you have a nutritional dif- uh, deficiency, then it's sort of like you swallowed a porcupine, and you can imagine yeah. um, when it's time to go to the bathroom, that's hanging up in there on all of that tissue and dragging. All out uh, the other end, and you'll see the snakes that prolapse they often have runny stools. It looks like it's difficult for the snake to go to the bathroom, and then suddenly you'll find a prolapse. And so he he discovered that by by putting some of that feces under a scope and saying, "Oh my gosh, can you imagine how many teeth are in here? There's so many teeth." And so that that led him to look at the teeth at the the feces of the the wild caught counterparts and um, neonates and, and seeing that there's, sure, there's still some teeth, but not nearly the numbers. And so it's able to pass through the digestive tract easily. And so then he started supplementing his adult males and females prior to breeding and uh, with vitamins. And, uh, and the, the, the problem, drastic difference. It just really, the, the number of prolapse dropped like a rock. And I think that's, you know, um, Chad, Chad Brown, um, and Robin, uh, um, Markland, they worked with these gray bands, and they started supplementing their females, their adult females, and they noticed that um, not only did their hatch rates go up, but their fecundity or the number of eggs went way up. And you just can't replace everything that that is out in the wild in the captive environment. So we've got to do our best, and, and maybe supplementing is, is one of those things. And who would know and, until somebody said, oh, you know, I'm going to take this children's vitamin, and I'm going to try to cut it down so I don't overdose my snake, but I'm still going to, I'm going to, um, I'm going to experiment with this and see what happens. And it takes somebody like that who's thinking outside of the box, looking deeper into the problem instead of just going, oh, this is a disaster. I don't want to mess with these anymore, and then let's hang it up. Right. They, they, they keep, keep plugging away. I, I, like find, uh, no, I, I find I find 
I find that um, sometimes those thoughts will run through my head. I remember talking with Rob Stone about, um, you know, uh, color. Yeah, I love Rob. Uh, Like, he used to supply, he used to supplement um, with Rapache's pig. um, Uh Uh-huh. And he he would think that that would help the color and, um, you know, those kind of things, like people will say, well, why are you doing that? It doesn't need it. Uh, clearly, you can reproduce these animals without it. You can keep them, and, and you know, they're healthy and this, but, but are they? You know, like, why not try right. to make it better? Why not try to figure out, like, really what's going on? Uh, I was just, I don't know. I was telling you, I was just at my, my vet today um, talking with him, and I, was, I, I brought a bottle of this polyvinyl, and I said, hey, man, what do, you, what do you think kind of a dosage, you know, what kind of dosage, dosage parameters should I be following with? And he kind of looked at the bottle, and he scratched his head, and he goes, you know, a lot of these different vitamins, like vitamin A is very toxic in, in reptiles. And, and he goes, oh, it's got vitamin A. Oh, it's got vitamin E. Oh, it's got vitamin D. It's like, some of these things mm-hmm. you've got to be careful with. And I said, yeah, yeah. And he says, you know, I think this is probably – you know, um, give him 0.5. And he says, you know, one way that you could, he says 0.5 should be safe for, for most things if you're talking adult snakes anyway. And I said, okay. And he goes, uh, but, you know, another way that you can do it is why don't you supplement the rodents and then feed the rodents to the snakes. And this is something that I do with, with my rodents. I've, I've got, you know, I get a lot of frozen rodents, but I also do live rodents. And I do um, a few different species of rodents. Um, I like African softwords. They're really great to get um, some things that are reluctant feeders. Sometimes they will respond to African softwords, even though, um, you know, my, my, my German friends called it mini-nippled mice. So, anyway, they're not a rat, <laughs> rat and they're not a, they're not a mouse, but they really, they're like a, a plague rodent. They, they, they go in these numbers that, um, you know, when the, when the famine or the dry season hits, you know, there's, there are very few of them, and then when, when the right weather conditions hit, um, the food supply is there, they just multiply like crazy, and they take care of each other's babies. They're a pretty neat uh, rodent to, to keep if you can keep them legally in your area, but, but um, a lot of animals that are difficult feeders will respond, even though they're not, you know, they, like um, emerald tree boas that are reluctant to feed uh, will often respond to a, a, an African softwood rat. And same with green tree pythons and a lot of venomous snakes. Uh, I kept, I used to have a very large collection of venomous snakes. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, I was lucky to, to work with some of the very first manganensis and, and fun stuff like that. But, but, um, but you know, it, it's good to have not only a variety of different uh, prey items to, to have, uh, a, a chance at, at uh, getting an animal that's that's being a difficult feeder going, or re, you know, kind of re-jumpstart an animal that went off feed and, and you're getting it back on. But also, I separate my, on my live stuff the things that are going to be feeders, and I start before the, the two weeks before they're going to be fed, I start really throwing all kinds of whatever table scraps we have. I start throwing them a lot of different things in their diet than just the block chow that they would normally be fed just to grow up to a certain size. Or the, when I'm looking for pinkies, I'm feeding those adults that I know are, are, are I'm putting together to breed, and I'm, I'm going to harvest the, the pinkies from, from cage X, and so I'm going to supplement the, the parents because it's, it's going to go to my baby, whatever. I think those mm-hmm. think, thinking along those lines are, is really uh, uh, what it takes, and it's you're not gonna look. You can like carrots are vi- high in vitamin A, right? Um, so I used, I used to always tell people I said, well, look, you like with say bearded dragons or 
green tree pythons, whatever. Um, you can feed your crickets uh, carrots until you can see the crickets look orange. You know, you can see the carrot through them. It's just like they're full of carrot, right? Um, and you can feed your mice or your rats lots of carrot, but no matter how much you feed that, you're never going to overdose your snake because it didn't overdose the mouse. It doesn't overdose the, right. the cricket can only eat so much carrot, carrot and the, the chameleon, the bearded dragon, can only eat so much cricket, and it's never to a point where it's, um, it's going to overdose it. But when we look at something artificial like a vitamin droplet or, or whatever, um, that's where you've got to be careful with your dosing, you know, and... Uh, and so some of the stuff, when you're, when you're kind of winging it, you have to be careful. But at the same time, it's important that you kind of step outside of the box and um, do something that hey, is a little experimental. Maybe it's not going to have the results that you want. Maybe it will be disastrous results. But somewhere some, along the line, somebody's got to try it. You don't just go blindly. Like I say, I, I talk to my vet first. And I don't just, just mm-hmm. wing it blindly and um, off into this foray, I, I, I kind of look at it in a logical pattern as well. You know, a baby's born at this size. They say to use it this size. A baby that age weighs X amount. This snake weighs this amount. Let's do the math, you know, and, and come up with a dosage. Um, and I, a, lot, a lot of times, uh, another way is you can inject the, the prey item. Well, that's what I prefer to do. And, and that's, uh, you know, back when and Chad and Robin, were they were injecting the prey item, uh, with with the vitamin, and I think that's a great way to do it. It's it's almost kind of like a little bit of a time release capsule. You know, the snake digests as it's digesting the rodent. It's getting some of that a, a little at a time. Um, lung cavity. I always tell people lung cavity is is the the place for meds, whether it's vitamins or or any other medication. You know, um, reducing stress in any animal is stress is the number one killer for reptiles. So. Uh, when when you're trying to treat them with with a medication, I always prefer, if possible, to find a medication that addresses the specific bacteria. We do a culture, and that that culture comes back with whatever the the, the species of bacteria is, and then they, they they run a sensitivity test, and the lab sends it back to the vet, and the vet says, hey, I got the results in, and it shows that these are the medications, that the antibiotics that we should be looking at. And I always try to, to select one that can be administered orally because I can flip the snake a mickey. I can I- inject that medication into uh, a thawed rodent's lung cavity. It's a great place right. to hold medication. I can squeeze the rib cage on either side, and, and you'll see, you know, like a thawed rodent, they usually have a little blood around the nose, and you squeeze in a little bubble. Yeah. It's the air coming out. And then you just insert your syringe between the ribs and fill the lung cavity with whatever milligrams per of, of venom of, of, uh, not venom, of uh, medication to however many uh, uh, kilograms of snake weight, you know, the, the correct dosage into the mouse and feed it, you know, and, and the snake yeah. never knows it was dosed. And so it doesn't cause the same stress as grabbing something and ramming a tube down its throat and squirting medication. With animal won't feed, you have to do what you have to do to get the, the animal treated. But if you can reduce stress, especially when you're acclimating wild-caught animals, you know, every bit of stress that you reduce it by um, gives you a leg up pretty soon. The best pharmacy in the world takes over, and that's the, the animal's immune system. And once you get its immune system back on track, you know, stre- stress levels go up, immune system goes down. And, um, not, you know, I don't care what, what medication you're using. It's, uh, it hasn't evolved for millennia like, like the snake's immune system. 
Um, right. And that's that leads into another subject that I want to talk about is um, that I see is very popular right now is uh, this bioactive substrate. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know what you what you guys what are you guys thoughts on bioactive substrate? I use it for my monitor cages because mm-hmm. monitors are filthy creatures, and mm-hmm. uh, and it does help out with because um, they'll bury like I'll feed them a bunch of hoppers and one will take one hopper and bury it. And it's good to have the mm-hmm. bioactive substrate to kind of break that down, otherwise the house smells like bloated dead rodent yeah. for a while. So right. That helps. Um, I have used it in the past when it comes to my white lips, just because it's mm-hmm. um, one less reason to have me go poking around the adult white lip cages, uh, which I feel makes them feel a little bit better. Uh, right. So I like it, but I don't use it in all my cages, just because I do think it's a little bit of a bear to set up. So. Right. Right. You know, I yeah. have. Uh, I have. Go, go. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I was gonna just say that I don't I don't use it. I I never I think it's cool that some people do it and they're able to do what they do and have like these natural setups and but it doesn't work for me. But. Right. You know, here's I, I, I can see the the logic uh on the side of the fence that says, um, you know, this is a a great sort of naturalistic thing, but it always brings me back to like when you're in scouts, when you're like Cub Scouts and they have this deal where you put uh, you put this much Elodea in the water, and you put this many snails. You know, you have a, like a gallon jug, right? They give you a gallon jar, and they say, oh, you put put one goldfish or one, one whatever, one guppy, and um, you put three snails, and you put, you know, eight stalks of Elodea, whatever plant, water plant in there, and and then you're supposed to be able to seal this thing up. And uh, and it's going to thrive. You're going to make your own little, you know, little uh, like biosphere here, right? And uh, two days two days later, you got a, uh, you know, a goldfish floating upside down in there. I never saw it work. And uh, maybe we didn't have the the mix exactly right, whatever the case may be. But I think it, it's it's impossible in a small environment to to kind of capture what's going on um, in in the you know the real world setting. Aside from that, the 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 danger that I see is uh, when when you talk about like you've heard this thing where you, how many microorganisms, how many thousands of microorganisms are living in a teaspoon of soil, right? Well, right. I assure you that the the number of microorganisms living in this teaspoon of soil here is very different from the teaspoon of of soil in Jayapura or wherever in the world that the animal came from. And that animal has evolved to have uh, certainly some of those um, some of those organisms are going to be beneficial to to the, the environment that the snake is in, and is, is going to that's going to be good. But some of them, if there are some, there's this many thousands. Some of them also could be detrimental. And that animal has evolved to be able to protect itself from the things in its natural environment. And when we introduce uh, things that are that it's not accustomed to dealing with different, totally different species um, of microorganisms into its environment. Uh, it's sort of like um, the settlers giving uh, small packs uh, uh, blankets, you know, uh, yeah. contaminated blankets to, to Native Americans. It it could really have some some detrimental effect. Um, you know, I. I I just see potential there for for things. I mean, 
anything that's kept in a sterile environment, it's probably not very healthy for it to be kept in a sterile environment. Things need to be able to 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 exercise their immune system to for the for it to be able to to maintain a strong immune system. Or as soon as it's exposed to anything that it's that's foreign to it, it's going to wipe it out, right? But um, but you, with bioactive substrates, I feel like I, I think it's uh, um, it's more than we are we really understand um, to be just uh, kind of getting artistic with something that could be uh, detrimental to the animal that we're keeping. I, personally, I keep things on the the kiss method. You know, it works very well for me. It fits me very yeah. well. Well, keep it simple. The stupid part, yeah, keep it simple, stupid. Yeah. But I think that. Um, there's no need to introduce more to an animal that is already um, trying to acclimate to a, to its new surroundings. And even if it's captive bred, I would say, look, uh, when people start asking me about this, I say, well, look, you know, if it's a captive bred animal, it knows what it's like inside of a cage. And anything that you're trying to do to make it look jungly in there, it's like, what, what the hell is that? It doesn't know anything mm-hmm. about that. If it's a wild-caught animal and you try to make it naturalistic, it's like, dude, I lived in the jungle and this ain't it. So right. <laughs> it, the, when we make it look naturalistic, it's really not for the animal. It's for us. And we, we love to see a cage that has, you know, pothos and philodendrons and, and um, all kinds of funky stuff in there, making it look like it's, you know, this cool, like, backdrop and all. I mean, it looks cool, right? And it looks great, especially, like, in your office or your, you know, as a display tank. It looks great. But um, the difficulty that it brings... Uh, with it uh, is, you know, it's a great place for bacteria and parasites. It harbors bacteria and parasites. Um, it it, uh, it just opens the doors to so many different things. I, I had a some, those first sabu pythons that came in. Um, one of them, one of them, uh, one time defecated in, in the cage, and it was you know a humid cage, and and um, uh, a, a mushroom sprouted out of this out of this turd. Oh no, God! I, you know, now I look back at it and I go. You know, I think that was a, that was like a, looked like a, it's probably a hallucinogenic mushroom from Savu Island. That's really wild, you know. Um, but anyway, who knows? It was a really funky looking mushroom. Um, but you know, if that's in its system, the spores for this are are in its system. Um, what are we introducing by introducing foreign things to the system too? There's there's got spores are microscopic. Um, and all of these other pathogens. Who knows what you could be introducing? And I just think you're you're playing with a, a can of worms that we don't really understand. My, you know, microorganisms. People like to, to chalk it up to, oh, this is a beneficial microorganism and that's a detrimental microorganism. And um, it's not like that. You know, it's some an, some organisms, um, microorganisms, can be both. In, in when their numbers get out of whack, they're detrimental. Um, it, when they're when they're not in in concert with another microorganism, the, the, some something's imbalanced in the, the symbiosis there, and and then it becomes problematic. Um, so there's so much that we don't know about uh, a, a lot of this that I, I think, uh, you know, that that lend, lends to question marks. I think it's great that people are experimenting with it and trying it, but um, I, I don't think it's something that I would endorse just because of the the. Uh, um, I would say, hey, this is the way to do it. This is better than that. It's a different way, and there's, there's no. I'm not saying it's a terrible thing to do, but um, I think if your, if your goal is to keep your animal safe, 
I think it's kind of a risky thing to do. So I, I, maybe I fall more on the side of uh, I'm on like, heck no, I ain't doing that, than, um, than the let's play ball here. Um, right. And that's kind of how I feel about it. I mean, I, you know, if I have to clean my monitor's cage a little more because you're right, dude, um, they tear stuff up and stroke guts mm-hmm. here and there when they're tearing something apart. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, that's part of, part of what they are. Um, is, it, is it great to have something uh, do my dirty work for me, clean that up? That's great, but and sometimes you can't even find what the problem is. That's the, the source of the odor. Um, yep. But, but um, you know, maybe it just means that I need to I need to change the way I'm doing something. And and uh, um, I don't know. You know, maybe maybe just I'm feeding I'd, I'd feed my monitors and make sure that they ate what they ate, and uh, not not just leave it there and hope that they they eat it. Mon- monitors are definitely a, a certainly a more uh, labor intensive. I say you you uh, multiply the workload by the number of legs the animal has. Um. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> turtles, turtles. If, if it's aquatic, you can you can quadru- quadruple the number on uh, top of the number. Scale. <laughs> the, scale the root of you know. Yeah. <laughs> Square root of what? Yeah. So anyway. Yeah. Um, we did. Uh, I wanted to hit on this real quick because we did get a question in, and um, oh. We were chatting. This was a while back, but um, basically it asked uh, – let me see if I can find it. Um, could you ask him what he thinks of Daniel Natusha's papers and what are your feelings on the breeding size for chondros? Uh, um, I, I, think, I think Daniel Natusha put a lot of uh, time and effort into it, and I think, it's a, I think his work is, is definitely um, something that's valid. Um, and I'm not sure exactly – exactly which portions of the papers, what exactly he's referring to, but um, that's a scientist that put a lot of time and effort uh, into the, the work that he did. And, um, and he talks about, uh, you know, all, all of these uh, farms sending out animals that, that are wild caught, and that's absolutely true. And, um, and then, you know, we, we talks about Azuria versus uh, Avirtus, um, that's interesting, and I can see a lot of it and hold it to be pretty valid. But where where I question things is is uh, this this kind of gray area where you know I saw this uh, my my buddy Ian posted this uh, cell. He posted this this map that showed and maybe he got that out of uh, Daniel's work. I don't know where the map originated from, but it, but it showed this map of of kind of the delineation of between uh, Azuria and, and Virtus and. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more uh, splitting than lumping in the future um, in, in Morelia viridis, um, similar a, a, to how uh, Somalia was, is, has been pulled off, was, which, which once was Morelia, and, and we start, we keep um, dividing things out, and, um, and you know, uh, mitochondrial DNA has a lot to do with that, how we're able to, to now look at, look at things and, and see on a, on a DNA level where, how these things, you know, nuclear DNA, whatever, see, see what, how these, these relationships really are, how close they are, aren't related. But I'm, I'm wondering about the transition zone where, where, um, where, you know, Azuria and, and Viridis, um, either overlap or, um, that borderline there. What what are those animals? Are, are they some sort of an integrate? What what exactly do we call that? And um, how that goes back to this how pure is pure thing. Um, mm-hmm. 
you know, if there's, if there's geographical barriers that are separating them specifically, then that makes sense. And there, but if, it, if you've got a, if you've got a, a borderline where this exists and it's this and this, that, you know, there's, there's no straight fence lines in, in nature, you know? So, um, right. So that, that's, that, that makes me kind of scratch my head a little bit. Really, uh, uh, I think Daniel's work is, is, is pretty valid and I, you know, um, who knows? Maybe somebody will come and, and uh, turn some of some of his stuff on uh, up into it, and they'll they'll have new theories, and, and we'll go, oh, you know, this guy's coming up with something. Science is cool because it ke- continues to to change. But I think really, uh, you know, a pretty talented researcher who's definitely put time into uh, what he's doing. Um, yeah. So, and, and the other question was, uh, what was what was the other question? Sorry. Breeding size of uh, your condos. Ah. Yeah, so you know that's really a, a a shot in the dark. And I I used to like um, I used to see this question always with ball python people when everybody says, "How big does your female need to be able to to breed? How how young can a male uh, ball python breed?" And it's the same way with with uh, I see it with green tree pythons too, where um, I don't I don't look at a gram weight anymore. I look at the animal and I say, "Look, the overall." constitution of this animal does it, um, does it have the the form the build does she have the shoulders and hips to get the job done and i have mm-hmm. I've, I've had lara that were you know never weighed more than 750 grams and produced for me consistently and i've had um you know other animals that you know they aren't going to do it unless they weigh about you know thousand thousand one hundred grams you know eleven hundred grams it just depends on on the specific snake you know I noticed that even within a single clutch, you'll have animals that have different growth patterns too. With, with within a single clutch of, they're all the same locale. Let's say, um, I noticed this. Way, I was uh, I was breeding uh, biox early on, and I noticed that uh, some snakes they seemed to grow, I say, uh, short and chunky. Like they um, they got they they got up to a weight uh, that looked breedable before their counterparts, but they they didn't get quite the same length to them, but they were hunky chunky snakes, right? And those snakes would breed mm-hmm. earlier than the ones that took a little longer to get there. They they, they were like long, live, uh, slender animals, and um, they took longer to reach maturity. But when it comes to, um, and they, I say longer to reach maturity, they, they took longer to be reproductively mature. And um, but when you average it out over the 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 span over like a five year period, the animals uh, uh, ended up producing the same amount of eggs. Even though this one produced earlier, that one that that was long and live, it actually produced more eggs uh, when it finally did produce. And whereas this this one that's kind of I say a stout snake, um, the the chunky monkeys, th- those animals uh, produced maybe a smaller clutch, um, but they produced consistently um, earlier than than the, than their those longer thinner animals. And I see that with a lot of different species of snakes. And I just think it's kind of nature's way of, of hedging its bets. Um, uh, you know, there's so much variety in the, in the genetics um, within a, a single group of, of green trees. We can see that just phenotypically when we look at them, we say, oh, man, they look so different um, just by, by color and, and pattern and whatever. But it's also 
differences in disposition and differences in, in uh, feeding habits and, and differences in reproductive strategies. Or what, genetically, this one's made up to, to breed at, at this uh, size and weight, and that one could do it at an earlier stage, an earlier, earlier weight, just by, based on its build. So instead of looking at a specific gram weight, I look at the animal's overall constitution, and I say, this one's got... This one's got the junk in her trunk to get the job done. And that one, she needs another year. And that's something that you can't, you can't come into it. The, the very question of what age uh, or what size, how many grams does a snake need to be, um, it is the question of someone who hasn't ha- doesn't have a, a number of clutches under their belt to see, oh, wait, you know, I can actually get them to do it at this size. I, I remember uh, um, Gary Scavino um, had this con- conversation with, with Kenny Ricci about, about some artifacts, and he said, hey, man, that girl probably will never weigh more than this. You know, that's just uh, that's a, about as big as she'll probably get. But she'll still pre- produce for you. I've got some that produce for me at this size. And see, um, it really just depends on the animals, not just the locality, but, but some, some animals just have a different build, you know, um, just, just like with, with humans. We're not, we're not all shaped the same and... and uh, yeah, so I always say, look, you know, so many people say, oh, well, I read in so-and-so's book that I'm like, well, did your snake read that book? You know, mm-hmm. I, I doubt it. And, and uh, um, you know, in the wild, the, the males don't approach a female and say, hey, c- excuse me, can you step on the scale a little bit here for a minute? I want to see you if you're, let me know how much you, you weigh. Know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, hey, man, how old are you? Show me your ID. i got to see if you're legal. It's, it's yeah. all, you know, it's all pheromone and um, – and that leads us to the, another fun topic um, that I made a post about. I think um, quite a few pro- people probably read the topic of of cycling. And uh, and Eric and I spoke about this the other night uh, when we were talking, whatever it was last week or whatever. And yep. um, and cycling, you know, uh, quite a few years ago, I got tired of of seeing uh, respiratory infections um, in my collection. And um, you know when you when you temperature manipulate to to breed um that that whole idea that whole concept like you know uh Bechtel did the corn snakes and they found it look well when we when we hibernate these animals um then we get um good spermatogenesis and we get um follicular development when things start warming up and um uh that's great for temperate dwelling snakes but but we're we've taken that knowledge and kind of applied it um, perhaps uh, erroneously, I, I don't know. It, it certainly is effective um, in tropical snakes, but we've applied it to tropical snakes. And uh, um, does it work? Absolutely, it, it works to temperature cycle. But over a, a given population, when you when you temperature cycle, um, you have a greater potential. Stre- breeding is a stressful activity. It, it's taxing mm-hmm. to to both parties, the males, the females, and um, and uh, and then when you subject them to a, another stress, uh, it's you know it doesn't take very long before you start noticing that even if it's one, even if you have however many animals you have, if you have one that winds up with uh, a respiratory infection, it's one is too many. And uh, and you'll notice that once it seems like once they end up with a respiratory infection, the next year they seem so much more susceptible to it when you start t- temperature cycling again. And, uh, and you'll see this reoccurring theme. And, uh, man, I just hate dealing with that. Uh, 
antibiotics and, and the worry of am I going to lose, I've, I've taken this much time to raise this animal to this size and now I'm going to lose it. And it's just, what a headache, you know? So mm-hmm. I, I said, there's got to be a better way. And I started, you know, um, thank heavens for the internet. You could see what, what temperature it is in Akragana. You could see what temperature it is in Paramaribo, you, uh, in, in Suriname. You could see what temperature it is in, in, uh, Whatever, uh, Bocandini, wherever you can see, you can see the temperatures um, throughout the year uh, on the internet, and f- on a month-to-month basis, um, there's not in a tropical area within a certain, you know, a, a, a latitude band of the equator. There's not a whole lot of deviation within a certain temperature parameter, um, like uh, even. Um, uh, my buddy Keith McPeak is, is uh, I think he's he's awesome guy. He's, he was on your show and, and just a, a good yep. friend. And I love the way his mind works. Uh, him and I get on the phone. We could just oh man, we could flat burn out the batteries on a phone. Um, <laughs> why, but yeah, his, his head just works in a in a cool way. He really is um, a, a, a great you know ethologist, sort of a, a behavioral. Uh, he, he pays attention to what the snakes are saying. I mean, you know, when I say that, people always laugh. Like, Snake whisperer, you know. But but um, there is, they're always talking to us. It's all um, whatever their body language. They're saying something, and if you're not listening to the conversation, uh, you know, you're the one in the dark, and um, and your your collection suffers for it. So so anyway, even even with those those animals that um, come from a higher elevation, like like Boland's, um Still, that temperature, the variance within its its microclimate, its habitat, uh, doesn't vary so much. Um, it's not so extreme where where that animal is actually at. And and I don't just say, well, in, he's in you know in this spot on the map. Um, snakes uh, exploit niches within their habitat. Um, they have to, to be able to thermoregulate, and so they're going to be where they're comfortable at. And uh, so anyway, um, long story short, I said, hey, uh, there's a different way to cycle these things, and what is the common denominator here? And I started realizing, well, it's not a cold, warm, uh, seasonal cycle that you see in a temperate zone. It's a tropical zone, and it's generally a wet, dry, you know, the, you get the monsoons, and then the rest of the, the other part of the year, your things are drying out. And uh, so, well, that's, that's a pretty pretty interesting thing i can't really flood my cages or i'll have like a, a, a mucky <laughs> um you know a, a, um what is it uh, that bio substrate going on <laughs> right yeah <laughs> right. you have to deal with that if you flood the cages you're the one who's got to clean it up so yeah. right you're right you got it no. you got so soup <laughs> bio bio muck yeah so yeah. I, i'm like well yeah. that you know flooding the cages is probably going to work so i started examining like well, obvious it's pretty obvious to anyone looking at uh when it's dry, animals aren't moving. They're doing the opposite of, of hibernating. They're estivating. They're, they're, they're holed up, sitting tight, waiting for the rain. And when the rain comes, you know, maybe when they're holed up, sitting tight, look, the, there's no food to eat anyway. Isn't that a great time for males to maybe go off feed and maybe they're, they're breeding? I don't know. But what I do know is that when the rains come, uh, the plants jump up. The bugs jump 
are eating the plants. The geckos and the frogs are, are eating the, the bugs. The, the, the rodents are having babies. And it's all timed perfectly so that when your green tree python pokes its head out of an egg or your carpet python pokes its head out of an egg, it has a skink to go, that fits perfectly in its mouth. And, um, right. And that is the kind of cycling that I was like, oh, wait a minute. Uh, it's, it's based on diet. Uh, suddenly there's a smorgasbord of food that builds up uh, the – everybody – suddenly the, the girls are like, hey, you know, I got enough to get the job done here. This, the, the tax that I'm going to have to pay for being, you know, gravid for, for two months and then another two months sitting on a clutch of eggs, I can afford that because I have this much – she slaps her belly – in reserve. You know, and um, and so this this sudden sudden banner of di- of food, you know, influx, um, it, it's going to spur uh, uh, oogenesis. It's going to spur spur a, a follicular cycle in, in females. In males, it's going to spur spermatogenesis. And and then uh, at a certain point, uh, pheromones. The, the the hormones are going to say, ah, let's let's release some pheromones. The boys smell love is in the air. And so what I do is I put the cages next to one another, the males and the female, and I let the males tell me when it's time to breed because they'll go off food and they'll still start acting squirrely. You know, they'll they'll, they'll like roam in the cage. They're, they smell that girl next door, and she's smelling pretty nice. And um, mm-hmm. and then. I, I, you know, I, I like to introduce them on a, you know, on a, on a night, of course, when there's some, some nice barometric pressure, some movement in the barometric uh, pressure, uh, you know, a storm front is moving through. Um, that that uh, snakes, I don't know, man, maybe we need hyperbaric chambers like for our snake breeding. Um, I've always thought that wouldn't be cool, like if I was some mad scientist and I had my hyperbaric chamber. You know, so like it's, it's the next, it's, it's the next, uh, um, the next, next step uh, to do that. Yes, the yeah. next step. You know, people thought they were cool when they when they could, um, you know, see if their snake was was gravid by, by uh, instead of just palpation. You know, now they've got they've got their machine and they can hook it up and we can look and say, oh yeah, look, I see the ova, yeah. and the, and they're, uh, you know, there was a time when ultrasounds people were like, what? Why would you? Oh, are you kidding? Really, an ultrasound? But you know, now people are like, oh yeah, and I ultrasound to her, and nobody even bats an eye, right? Who knows, you know, maybe in the future, it's my hyperbaric chamber. I don't know. You have to sell a lot of snakes for that. But, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so, so I, I put the snakes together, um, you know, when there's I – like, I like to – you know, I'm sitting down, I'm watching the whatever the 9 o'clock news, and they're like, oh, yeah, you've got a storm front through, m- moving through. Sometimes you're just outside, and it's like – I love those nights when, uh, when the wind can't decide which way to blow, when it, when it smells and feels like it wants to rain. The air is thick, but it can't, it can't quite get it there. That's a great night to put snakes together. It's also a great night to go snake hunting. Um, mm-hmm. I love getting out and doing some herping. But, but um, I, I put the snakes together like that, and, you know, we're, we're all strategic about who we're going to place with whom. And sometimes you put the boy in with his girl, and the guy just ain't getting the job done. And that's when I go to the freezer. Um, and when I uh, – when I, I like to watch my collection pretty closely when, when a male is shedding – Man, I grab that shed skin when it's when it's still moist and tacky when he just crawled out of it. Um, I'm I'm there like oh give it to my buddy oh thank you very much take it slap it in a Ziploc bag I spritz a little distilled water water on it there's there's no you know elements in there that are gonna give off any funny smells or whatever it's just pure water I spritz it with a little distilled water squeeze the air out of it Ziploc it shut and throw it in the freezer with a, a label of what it is on there and then 
when I got a male that's kind of sitting on his laurels and he ain't getting the job done, I'll take that, grab that uh, shedding out of the freezer, and I'll, I'll warm it up you know, like in my pocket or in my hands or whatever, thaw it out, and uh, pull it out, and I'll drape it all over the, the inside of the cage and over the, the female's back or whatever. And, you know, it, it's, it's tantamount to you worked all day, and you came home, and there's this dude sitting on the couch doing the Netflix and chill with your, with your girl, He's got his arm around her. He's in his boxers and he's got his cowboy boots on on your coffee table while he's drinking your beer in his cowboy hat. You know, I'm telling you, there's yep. going to be some, some some fireworks, and uh, that snake will will he'll look all over that cage for where's that guy at? I know he's around here somewhere. When he doesn't find him, he goes, "That's right, I ran him off. I'm such a badass. Let me go show her how cool I really am." And it, it's that yep. competitive factor. It really works. Um, and, 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 you know, it's not dangerous because you can't put two, two males of Morelia anything together without having a bloodbath. Uh, it's just not a great idea to put two males together, as you know. But um, the shed trick works pretty good, and it's, it's pretty effective, pretty well, I should say. It works pretty good. <laughs> anyway. Nice. Awesome. Cool. <laughs> so yeah, got to get the hillbilly in there. <laughs> So just, I'm just anyway. curious. When you're cycle feeding, right? And mm-hmm. you're you're feeding. Are you upping the amount that you're feeding? Are you feeding bigger prey items? So I kind of break. I kind of break all the rules when I'm doing it. I I uh, like with emeralds. We always say with emeralds. You know, you want to you want to feed. Uh, you know, once every three weeks, you want to feed uh, them small prey items, and you. And uh, some of that stuff I, I, I stick with. Um, w- with green tree pe- pythons, a lot of times people say, I only feed mine mice. Well, I assure you, th- they're not asking, excuse me, are you a mouse or a rat? They're opportunistic feeders, and they'll take a rat as quickly as they'll take a mouse. You know, um, I, wh- who is it? Uh, Schultz, M- Mike Schultz posted the picture of one the other day eating, a, eating another snake. I mean, um, they, they eat what they eat. But, but what I, uh, I don't know that I really can condone him feeding whatever, a, a deformed baby snake to another snake, whatever. Um, but, but what I do is uh, I feed heavy in the spring because that, whatever I say spring, snakes can, those, these tropical snakes, as you know, can, can lay eggs any time of the year, any month of the year, they can do it. So after they've bred, um, I want to put the weight back on them. So I feed them hard and heavy after a reproductive cycle. And then generally what I do is I try to get it all. Everybody likes to have things on an expectable uh, kind of production value. And so I, I generally uh, around June 1st, um, I, I stop feeding. And when I say I stop feeding, I mean I stop feeding. It's like lights out. There's no more food. And uh, I continue to giving them uh, water. But I've, here I've fed them up pretty, pretty heartily. Um, and when I say pretty heartily, uh, it depends on the animal. But some, some girls, you know, I, I'll feed them. Um, a reasonable size. I don't feed them great big meals. Snakes will. You can actually grow a snake faster feeding them smaller meals without um, without considering it power feeding. You can you can really do it by feeding them a smaller meal that metabolizes quickly. Um, you'll grow them faster than if you feed them great big meals. It's just like if I give you the Thanksgiving dinner and um, and then I say, hey man, let's go run around the block. You're gonna. Be like, I don't think so. You're gonna be on the couch sleeping. But if I give somebody else. Uh, six small meals in a day, and we we weigh the caloric intake um, 
six small snacks, so to speak, in a day, and we weigh the caloric intake of you with your Thanksgiving dinner, and this guy that ate six small small meals where he didn't ever feel like he was sated, uh, he'll actually have taken in more calories than you have. But his metabolism still stays up too. So, right. so anyway, um, you know, I'll feed these, these snakes heavy after reproduction to build their, their stores back up. Some of the animals are going to make the cut and some of them aren't. And the animals that don't make the cut for, for breeding that season, I'll just say, hey, you know, we're going to continue feeding you at a, at, at a normal pace. We're not going to throw it at you heavy now. We're just going to back off and we're going to throw you a, a meal on a consistent basis where some people say, oh, you know, we feed our adult green trees, you know, a mouse or two every two weeks. So that's a pretty consistent, just a maintenance diet, I would say. But then in the fall, uh, you know, like the end of August, uh, depending on the, on the animals, but at the, at the end of August, I start really throwing the food at them again. And that's where they've had this period where they didn't have anything to eat for, sorry, I'm outside, obviously, on the porch like we talked about earlier. <laughs> uh, <comfortable>. <laughs> um, <laughs> you can hear the, the traffic in the background. Um, no, but uh, uh, you... Then I start really throwing the feet at them, um, like August, uh, end of August, um, September-ish. And, um, and, and, you know, that sudden influx of food, uh, man, they eat it up. Sometimes I'll have a girl that will, will eat. It's boys, too, but, but um, it's really important, of course, with the girls. You know, the males, um, they're important. You've got you to gotta, uh, keep an eye on your weight. So you, can, you can breed a male to death if you're not watching what you're doing, uh, just, as, just as you can um, – you can kill a female by breeding her back-to-back years or breeding her at a too young of a, a size, you know. So you have to be a pretty good, um, you know, you have to a pretty good observer. Um, but, but anyway, um, I feed them heavy, and sometimes I'll have a girl that she'll, she'll eat, and then three days later she's, like, ready to eat again. I like to feed them a meal that when they take it, um, you know, when they get done and they kind of look up at you like, well, where's the rest, you know. I like right. that size of a meal where they, they come up and they're like, oh, where's it? And I'm like, okay, don't worry. You know, I know you, you bite my fingers off right now because you're so ready for the next one, but you're not getting it. You're not getting it yet. And I'll put the lid on, but three days later I'll, put, I'll go past her cage and, and she'll be, boom, take it again. And I feed them good like that. Um, I feed them heavy, um, and, uh, and it, it initiates that, that follicular development. And, and I'll know when they're ready because the, girl, the, the girls will continue to feed um, the boys, the boy will stop feeding, and um, and then I know he's ready to rock and roll. And what's interesting is sometimes the girls even become a little more voracious in that during that initial um, introduction period, uh, where where he's been locking up with her. Um, I I don't think it's a great idea when snakes are locked up to offer them food while they're locked up. I mean, um, I've seen guys in the ball python community that have had uh, you know such a voracious lunge for food from a female that they've they've actually pulled hemipenes off of a male so oh wow you know yeah yeah i mean Jesus. blood pythons are are, are uh, snakes that will often continue feeding even while they're gravid um they'll, they'll continue feeding um whereas green tree pythons they, they're initially they seem like they're they're very um it's like somebody turned the 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 oven on high you know they're like ready to they're, the afterburners are kicking in. They're ready to eat, eat, eat during that first initial stages of, of breeding. But then it, it hits a point, and I think that's, that's where you've, you've got follicles get to a certain size. Um, things are moving along, and then in her system she just says, all right, enough, no more. And she just stops. And, uh, you know, I don't want to be feeding um, a snake, even with the girls that are um, species that will continue, like, like emerald tree bows, 
tend to continue feeding. I really love emeralds. Um, they continue feeding all the way through until sometimes like the last two weeks or even week before parturition. Um, but I don't feed them big meals purposely because, I mean, I would just think that digesting a big meal and passing it through when you've also got babies in those, you know, in that same region of your body, it's, you know, you don't want to be pushing things along. So, uh, right. so I feed them smaller meals, but I continue to feed them. You know, I'll, I'll feed the girl until she stops. And uh, usually that's a great sign. I'm like, um, like right now I've got um, the, that, that Tamika male has been locking up. And uh, the girls are still eating, but they're they're eating with this vim and vigor that I kind of like to see. So I'm I'm sometimes when things continue to eat, you're like, oh, she didn't take, right? But but when I see this kind of feeding, I'm kind of like, hey, you know, there's this this isn't this isn't bad news that she's still feeding. And then suddenly when she stops, it's like hallelujah, you know, look, she stopped. I think we're gonna, you know, and that that's kind of um, doesn't mean success is is uh, eminent, but it's uh, a great little sign to see along the way, isn't it? Sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So. Um. Well, we got what twelve minutes left. So uh, two what, things. Is that it? One, yeah, that's it. That's um, not long enough, buddy. Apparently <laughs> <laughs> not. Yeah. Don't uh, worry. We'll have to have you back for round two. I wanted you yeah, to like throw that. out any kind of information if somebody wants to get in touch with you or anything like that. How, how do they go about that? Do you have a, a website, a so, Facebook page? I, just my, my Facebook page is under my name. It's H-A-R-L-I-N Wall, just like the wall next to you. And my phone number is pretty, pretty easy, too. It's uh, 970-255-9255, and that's, that's 970-255-WALL, uh, just like my last name. And uh, <laughs> so it's, uh, it's pretty easy to remember. And, uh, you know, phone is a great way to reach me. Um, if I can't talk to you, I'll tell you, hey, man, I can't talk right now. But, but generally, uh, that's I – really, I mean, you can always message me on Facebook and say, hey, I'd like to talk to you about such and such. Um, is there a time we can, we can speak? And, and uh, you know, uh, you just get such more, more vivid conversation. You get to know somebody, too. It's fun uh, when, you're, when you're on the phone. Uh, then, then when you're trying to type, the depth of conversation just doesn't come across. My, my type and skills must suck. I don't know. <laughs> no, you know, I just, I just like, uh, I like to connect with people, and I think you, you can do it a little better over the phone. But you know, I've sure. got fun, fun things stewing and brewing that I'm not talking a lot about now. But, but uh, you know, a few months down the road, uh, we may, I might have to come back and, and visit you guys again, and. and uh, See what's what's what may have materialized, but but um, man, I, I really enjoyed this this show, and uh, I would love to do it again. Uh, yeah, you guys are, are awesome, and and I'm honored to to have been invited to to be a guest on your show. And I just wanted to say thank you guys so much, and thank you to all the people who who said, hey, put this guy on. Um, <laughs> I've had a, I've had a blast. <laughs> you guys are awesome. Great topics. Um, you guys are awesome hosts, and. Um, I hope more people will continue to tune into your show. So yeah, so, thanks. So Appreciate true. that. So um, <laughs> anyway, the last thing I want to close with is is that I was over at Matt Minatola's house last night, and um, awesome guy. Yes, I was checking out his yeah. uh, baby setup for his chondros. And oh yeah. He said he got it from your uh, video that you had on your Facebook. Now I shared that over on the NPR Facebook. Um, Great. So people could see it. Thank you. But I just wanted you to maybe 
in the closing time that we have, just talk about that setup real quick. Yeah, it's really simple. Um, I, I'm, I'm of that, that ilk. I really like simple. When people see some of my cages, they're like, you keep them in what? I do a lot of Sterlite plastics. I have, it's funny, I always say, hey, man, I've got, you know, I've got, I've got boa file cages. I've got vision cages. I've got, uh, um, uh, I've got a jillion, her, you know, bush, the old bush herp cages, um, mm-hmm. rhodacea cages. And, and these things oftentimes are like, I find them sitting on my back porch or they're sitting empty in, a, in another room, in a spare room. And I, I utilize a lot of sterlite plastics um, because I can, I can control the amount of humidity uh, in the cage by the amount of air holes that I put in it. And, you know, condensation is not your friend in your cage, um, contrary to, to what some people may think. You don't want to see condensation inside your cage because that means it's a great place for bacteria and mold um, yeah. Yeah. to thrive. And, and, and uh, too, too moist like that will eventually lead to stomatitis or it will lead, uh, mouth rot infection or it will lead to... Uh, um, respiratory infections, and the same is true of too dry. So you've got to have this kind of happy, happy marriage between the two. And I like, uh, so I like uh, just a, 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 like a paper pad or a, um, a substrate that's just a, a, like a paper. You can get end, end rolls from your local printer, print shop. Um, whoever's printing your newspaper will has end rolls. So they'll give them to you for free. And you can, you can put paper in your cage or you can do uh, and I like a deli water bowl. This this little one that you're talking about. I just I put paper towel on the bottom. I put a, a, a water bowl. This is the small deli that you get your whatever um, uh, potato salad in at the grocery store. And uh, and then a crisscross made of plastic coat hanger. Now the only thing organic inside of that really that that could could mold is the paper towel and. The snake's going to defecate on it, and you're going to chuck it anyway. So everything in there is very easy to, to sterilize, to clean. Um, I just clean with a Chlorhex solution. But um, this, the way those, the, the coat hangers, uh, the plastic coat hangers are, um, when, you, when you zip tie them together like that, uh, they don't sit flat. They have a wobble to them, and I like that because uh, that wobble allows, and I don't, I don't, uh, Put a hole through the cage and, and secure, the, fix the, the the perch in there so it's a solid perch. I let it be a free floating perch. I just rest it on top of the water bowl. It's just sitting on top of the water bowl, and so it has a little bit of play in there. It can shift in there um, as well as wobble. And this is to the benefit of the animal um, and to the benefit of the keeper. The, the cages are so cheap. These little flip top plastic things are like 98 cents. You can you can grab that. Um, perch and transfer it, snake and all, without having to peel your snake off of the perch. And neonates are really, their tails are, are really delicate, and it's easy to damage it, mm-hmm. pulling it off of a perch, just as it is probing it at too young of an age. So, so I never have to really touch the snake at all. I just grab the perch, lift it up, and slap it into the next one that's already clean and waiting. They're cheap enough. You can ha- always have clean ones waiting in the wings when your snake soils its cage. And so that's nice. But Oftentimes you'll see snakes, um, especially some of these beginner um, great great uh, localities that are cheaper. Um, Beox, for instance, are, are often pushers. Any, any green tree can do it where they push their head against something and they'll get a, a sore or raw spot on their head. It's a very common thing to see in green tree pythons. And, um, 
And a great way to heal that up is to put them into a cage that has a non-fixed perch that will wobble. Because when the snake has its body anchored on the perch and it stretches its neck up to push against the lid or whatever, if that perch wobbles, it feels unstable and the snake will stop pushing. And you'll kind of, I say Pavlov, you kind of train this animal from an early age that pushing is, is not a good thing. It causes this wobble, and so we stop pushing. Pretty soon they learn it, and then you transfer them to the next cage and the next cage, and you'll see that they don't perch, they don't uh, push against against the, the lid of a cage generally anymore after that. I mean, sometimes there's always an exception to the rule, but, but this is a great way. You put them into a cage. Later you can use fixed perches. Sure, that's great, but, but in those early stages I find that, um, especially if they already have a sore spot on their head, I mean, it'll heal it up quick because they, they just discontinue pushing against that that already sore or, or raw spot on their head. So it's really great. It's super effective. Um, I, you know, I limit the air holes. You'll be able to see when you watch the, the video wherever you watch it, uh, you know, just so that the I want I want the skin to come off like a lady's stocking. Um, and uh, if, as long as I'm not seeing condensation and I, and I think about a lady's stocking and it's coming off, I'm like, yes. Um, if I'm seeing stuck shed, I know I don't have enough uh, – I have too much ventilation. If I if I see condensation, it means that I don't have enough ventilation. And you can gauge it. You can move. You can kind of um, as you shift, as you grow the the animal up, you can shift it to the next cage and next cage, and you kind of know about how many air holes you'll need. It just becomes almost rather instinctive. As oh, well, this is how many I need to hold this humidity level. And about 75 or 80 percent humidity is what you need to to maintain. You don't really need that 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 100% condensation humidity uh, going on in keeping the snake. Now, incubating may be a different factor, but, but, um, but certainly when, you know, too much humidity is, is as dangerous as too little. So anyway, that cage really works good. It's simple, it's cheap, um, and it stacks nicely. And when you're all yeah. them, they break, they break down nicely and they, sh- you know, nest one inside of the other and you can stack them in a closet somewhere. And, and, uh, when you got babies again, break them out and, and you're ready to rock and roll. It's, it's pretty effective. I, I, I think that's what I like. I like uh, something that's repeatable. It's simple, and it's really effective. And, and that kiss, kiss method, man, keep it simple, stupid. It works. <laughs> there you go. So anyway. Perfect. So, that's man, awesome. I feel like there's so many topics we didn't cover tonight. Isn't that funny? Yeah. I told you. I had fun. Yeah. I hope. I hope the listeners had as much fun as I had. I, I, my, my father said that I was vaccinated with a phonograph needle. Um, I just talk and talk, man. So, uh, so anyway. Uh, um, yeah, that's cool. I hope, I hope somebody enjoyed it. But uh, yeah, so it was um, good. Interestingly hmm? enough, uh, you should know that. Uh, oh, and I didn't say this at the beginning, but there yeah. was like ten people that called in to listen. So really, <laughs> yeah. Oh. So, Typically, typically we never have pe- – see, what happens is they can call in and they can listen to the show into overtime. So, like, the last hour isn't broadcast live. They have to go back and listen to it, you know, on iTunes or whatever. Um, right. But if they call in, they can listen to the whole thing. Um, and there was, like, ten people. We couldn't take no more people wow. on the line. <laughs> wow. Point, I got, really I got booted. All right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Somebody, uh, I, I dropped out there for a couple of minutes, and then we had to reconnect. So I got knocked out because somebody, people kept calling in. All right. 
No kidding, really. Cool. So funny. That's really cool. Well, I, I had so much fun. I hope I hope the listeners enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing it, and I would love to come back again anytime you guys uh, would have me. Uh, I'm I'm there. I'm along for the ride. Uh, awesome. Thank you guys awesome. again. And and I'd like to say thanks to all my customers out there, and and even if you haven't bought a thing from me, I, I love just uh, connecting with someone. And so many times, these people that I've never made a sale with, they'll call call and they have questions and uh, I'm always happy to help I think that's what we're, we've all got to help each other in this you know we're all we're all learning together and uh, uh, I like that I think that's the beauty of this uh, you know is, is the people that we meet along the way that's that that's that gem that that uh, maybe it's not talked about as often as it should be but uh, absolutely great people in the Morelia world for sure a yeah. lot of fun so definitely so All right. we are going to get cut off. Um, thanks for coming on. We're definitely going to have you back, uh, maybe even for our Chondro roundtable at some point. Um, oh, I'd love it. Know. That'd be fun. <laughs> yeah, that's a good There you go. Um, All right. So uh, I think it's going to come like any second now. We're going to get cut off. So I just want to thank you for coming thanks, on. And uh, thank you. we'll talk soon. All right. Sounds awesome.